Censorship in the software industry, digital transformation in McDonald's, and the power of BI and analytics. Those are just a few of the topics we're going to cover here today in episode number 120 of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to episode number 120 of Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling, CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world reach their third stage of digital transformation success. And this podcast is called Transformation Ground Control, which is all about everything related to digital transformation, including the people, process, technology, and strategy aspects of transformation. With me, joining me as always is my co-host, Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Eric. Excited to be here today. I'm excited too. We've got a great show, some really interesting, juicy stuff to cover today, mm-hmm. um, even more so than usual, yeah. um, as, particularly in our hot topic segment. We're going to start off uh, the opening segment with uh, with some questions and answers, some questions from the audience on social media, and we'll get to uh, our answers for those questions. And then our in our hot topics, we're going to cover three things. We're going to cover uh, censorship in the software industry. And this is uh, sort of like a breaking news sort of situation that happened right as we were getting ready to film this podcast or record this podcast. Um, And we seem to think that there's been some censorship in the industry. We'll come back to that, though, and explain what we mean by that. But it involves SAP, uh, the the big ERP software vendor, Um, if if you want a little teaser of what that's all about. But just stick around. That'll be the first thing we get to. Or as soon as we get through the Q&A, audience Q&A, we'll come back to the hot topics, and that'll be the first one we cover. Uh, within that opening segment with hop topics, we'll also cover um, uncovering the connected enterprise. And then we'll also talk about digital transformation at McDonald's and the menu of digital transformation at McDonald's more specifically. And then later in the show, our first guest will be uh, Anthony Adelike. I, I might be mispronouncing his name, uh, but I, I believe it's uh, Anthony Adelike. Uh, he's is the uh, a director of data and analytics at a company called PCI Government Services. And he's going to be on chatting with me about the topic of the power of BI and analytics. And we're going to talk about this in the context of uh, sports, uh, which is heavily focused on data and analysis and um, analytics. But we're also going to talk about it in the context of how some of that mindset within the sports world and data analytics can transition or, or be leveraged in the business world as well. So we'll talk about that with Anthony later in the show. And then finally, last but not least, we'll have Wayne Holtham, who is a vice president of our Asia Pacific office of third stages, Asia Pacific office. He's based in Australia and he will be on chatting with me about the power of process, business process management, or I'm sorry, business process mining in digital transformation. So we'll talk about business process mining tools and the whole process of business process mining and how that can integrate with and enable a more effective digital transformation and process improvement efforts. 
So look forward to uh, playing you that clip with Wayne later in the show. But before we do that, let's jump into some of the questions you've got for us, Kyler. Absolutely. We'll have some fresh questions in your question jar. And just a reminder to the audience, if you do pop a question in the comments wherever you're watching today, um, I will pull it and ask Eric in future episodes. You can also comment on all of his content or third stage content. And those questions are pulled into our jar that we open that we ask him in real time. He's never seen these before. That's the fun part, the shock and awe. But let's see. Love the shock and awe. I know. Gotta gotta love the shock. Keep it authentic, right? Yes. Um, do you see blended reality tools becoming part of the supply chain? Hmm. Uh, yes, I believe so. And I believe we're already starting to see some use cases of that. I think we've talked about a couple of them in the past episodes of this podcast. In fact, I think in the hot topic segment of this podcast, we've covered it in the past, although I don't recall which episode, which is not at all helpful to the audience uh, that I'm even mentioning it, if you haven't heard that episode. But um, yeah, blended reality tools are something that uh, can be effective in supply chain. Um, anything really to do with with manufacturing, distribution, uh, warehousing, um, transportation, logistics, all that stuff. There's a lot of um, blended reality uh, sorts of uh, use cases, although I will say it's still very much a bleeding edge technology, in my opinion. It's not something that has reached any sort of mainstream or widespread adoption within supply chain management. Um, I think most organizations, at least the ones that hire us at third stage, uh, are a lot less mature. They're nowhere close to that level of maturity to leveraging some sort of emerging technology that's that advanced. If that makes sense and and unproven, quite frankly. I mean, until you get that widespread and mainstream adoption, the the benefits that you can get from that technology are somewhat limited. So I think there's a, a lot of barriers to getting to that that level of adoption. But it is something that has a lot of potential, though. Um, and we've seen some isolated cases where organizations are using blended reality. Interesting. Definitely something to to keep a watch on there. But very good question. It is. Yeah. Getting into the deep into the emerging tech stuff. No, already. I always love that. I always love that. Um, so what about the cost difference between best of breed and single ERP, especially when it comes to customizations? Yeah, that's a great question. And I recall seeing that question or comment on a social media channel somewhere, one of our channels. Um, and it's a great question, but I, I think that the way to think about it is, first of all, whoever asked the question is spot on. There, There is a cost associated with customization. Not only the cost of actually customizing the software, the, the act of customizing the software itself, but then the cost of maintaining that customization longer term, um, there's some definite benefits there. Or I'm sorry, some de some definite costs there. I was jumping ahead to, I already gave away where I'm going with this. Um, but, but you have to look at it from a business case, ROI analysis and business value perspective too, and look at what is the business value or the business benefits of doing customization potentially. And how does that cost benefit analysis compare to the cost benefit of not customizing the software? So in other words, it might be cheaper to deploy software without customization, but you might get more business value by deploying software with customization, particularly if it's something that gives you a competitive advantage, if it, if it, um, addresses a weakness or a deficiency in the software you're deploying off the shelf, customization can be a way to, yes, increase your cost, but potentially increase your business value even greater. So you really have to do a, a cost benefit to look at um, how they compare. And we have a client right now, actually, who's, who's going through that exercise on the supply chain side, speaking of supply chain management. Um, and they are trying to figure out 
if some of the customization and some of the third-party bolt-ons that they are hearing requests from employees to to deploy, um, they're they're trying to we're helping them analyze whether or not the value is really there. And in their case, they're getting such significant value, or there's so much of potential business value in their supply chain inefficiencies that they're leaning towards actually doing that uh, level of customization. So this is one example. I'm not saying that's right for every client, but I think you're right though to question that. The person that that asked the question, you should question it. Why are we doing this? What, do we really need to customize? What's this really going to cost? What's the real value? Is, is that really better than just deploying vanilla off-the-shelf software? Easier said than done, but it is something you have to ascertain or compare. Yeah. And I'll just add, that's what the third stage team does many times is helps you through these analysis because it's really complicated and complex and can go many different ways, especially if you have a vendor involved pushing a certain um, solution for you. Uh, so that's a, a big role that we play. Um, and then, you know, speaking of the supply chain, we do have our newly released supply chain management guide, um, which is linked below. It's one of our newer assets. Um, and I'd love to hear your feedback on it as well. Um, so you can always reach out to me directly if you do at kyler.cheatham at thirdstage-consulting.com. I always like to hear what your your thoughts are on that. Do you want to hear my do you want to hear my feedback on the supply chain guide? Because I think it's awesome. Or is that just too biased? You, you aren't talking to me. <laughs> oh, good. Good. I'm glad you think it's awesome. It's your thought leadership. So um, we just <clears> make If there's some clear. bias to be heard on this episode, it's probably that, that the supply chain guide from Third Stage Consulting is awesome. Ooh, I've been waiting to get to this one for weeks. And I, this one's for the audience too, okay? Because it's okay. a very controversial subject. So this is not a question. It's a comment. And I want your reaction to it. It's... I think chat GPT makes students lazy. <laughs> oh, is this the one? Um, this isn't the one, the same comment about resumes or that's a different way. I think we covered no, that. No, no, that, that wasn't. I mean, which you could go into the ethics of HR and chat GPT for hours, but I'm interested to hear from you in the audience. Does chat GPT make students lazy? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to hear from the audience. Should I just wait and see what they say first? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> No, but I, I think, you know, my opinion is that it's hard for me to relate to it, I, I suppose, just because my kids aren't quite old enough to fully take advantage of chat GPT or, or at least use it to be quote unquote lazy. Um, but I, I could see how that might be the case, especially, you know, if you think about like, if you back up, you look at calculators, you, even when calculators were invented, you still learned how to do math. Like you still just to understand the logic of it. And, you know, you still, they still teach that in school. Um, although the way they teach math now, it doesn't make any sense to me, which is weird because helping my kids now with homework, I don't understand the way they teach it, but that's a, that's a whole other story. Um, but I think just in the same way, calculators, if, if you just rely on calculators and don't learn how to do longhand division or multiplication, or you don't understand the concepts of it, I suppose calculators make you lazy as well. Um, so I, I don't know, I, I tend to agree because I think there's a lot of critical thinking that is probably going to go away as a result of ChatGPT because ChatGPT is doing it for you and in many cases, or it can do it for you. Um, I actually have a, one of my son's friends at school or at, at his school, he's a, he's a 10th grader in high school and, and his friend got in trouble for using ChatGPT to write a report. So I have no idea how the teacher found out or how the school found out, but he got suspended for a week and suffered you know academically or as a result of it. So I know, you know, schools are probably onto it, I imagine. Um, I just don't know how you how you prove it if, if you're them. But um, I do think there's a lot of critical thinking that you miss out on if, you know, you just ask Ch ChatGPT to answer something for you that, yes, it's more efficient, but 
the actual act of going and finding research and coming up with an answer similar to what ChatGPT might give you, that that's the whole point of school is to learn that critical thinking. And then as you get older and you've got that knowledge, then you know you can use ChatGPT in that way. Just like we all use calculators now, we understand math, but it doesn't mean we need to do longhand division and stuff like that uh, anymore. So I, it's sort of a, I know that's sort of a mixed answer, but I'd say, yes, I think it, it can and probably will make kids somewhat lazy or lazier um, going forward. Interesting. Um, yeah, definitely uh, pop your opinion in the comments here and then um, we'll we'll kind of bring them up um, and see what, what they say in um, next week's episode. So we'll, we'll tease that um, and get some feedback there. So, um, but with that, we have a lot of hot topics to cover this morning. So I want to make sure that we, we get to those. Um, so I'm excited to discuss all of these scandalous hot topics with you this week, Eric. Yeah. Yeah. We'll take a quick break and we'll come back and talk about those hot topics, which are focused on censorship in the software industry. Breaking news is going to be a good, that's going to be a good topic. Uh, uncovering the connected enterprise and then the menu of digital transformation options at McDonald's. Those are the three hot topics we'll cover here in just a moment. And then later in the show, we'll have Anthony Adelike from uh, a company called PCI Government Services. And uh, he'll be on talking about the power of BI and analytics. And then last but not least, later in the show, the last segment of the show will be focused on business process mining and digital transformation. We'll have Wayne Holtham on the show. He'll be uh, from our third stage, uh, APAC office in Australia. He'll be on the show chatting with us, talking about that. So be sure to stick around. So we'll be right back. We'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 120. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyla Cheatham. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday, streaming to YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as on audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So be sure to check it out there. Uh, thanks for joining today, and thanks for all your feedback and comments as we go through the episode. So, uh, hot topics. What have you got for us, Kyler? You've got you've got a, three of them that are pretty yeah. Pretty I do. So since I am hungry and haven't had lunch yet, we're going to start with McBusiness, um, which is the menu of digital transformation at uh, at McDonald's specifically. Uh, so it's an, an interesting case study that showcases McDonald's kind of future digital self and what they've created around investments into kiosks, mobile apps, and technology that just drives customer changes to their overall operating model and business model of how they experience and, and interact with the, the brand. Um, so it's interesting because the this study actually compared it to in the 1940s, they went through a business transformation, which we, we called 
digital transformations, more business transformations, because they do affect the entire business. But what they did is it was Dick and Mac McDonald in New England actually left in the 1920s for California here in the United States. And they founded their first store in 1948 in San Bernardino. And really what they focused on was leaning out the menu, fewer choices. And that was an instant efficiency revolution. And they could make those 15 cent hamburgers. Um, They were selling them almost as fast as they could make them. So it just showcases that it was even before technology that they had that identity and innovation as a company. Yeah, it's part of their DNA and culture. Exactly. Exactly. So what they started to do um, was focus on the drive-through because that's where they get 70% of their sales of, of people not wanting to get out of the car. That's a value add. Um, for them. And they actually acquired a company called Dynamic Yield for $300 million in 2019. And it's an Israeli startup that utilizes artificial intelligence to change the ordering process dramatically. So what it does is it uses thing data points like weather, previous orders, local trends, license plate image recognition, um, and those other things to uh, look at algorithms about ordering trends and increase revenue and profits to match the customer or the location of the actual McDonald's. Um, so that example has led to a pretty significant growth throughout Q3 specifically this study looked at. So last year, Q3, um, and they they jumped at uh, 10% year over year which was really high above the analyst stock growth, which is 6%. Um, and they were most strong, in not in the U.S., in the United Kingdom, Germany, France, and Australia. So if we have any of those locations joining us and have experienced those McDonald's before, I'm just so excited to hear what they're like because I've, I've never seen one. Um, so that's just kind of a case study of utilizing a brand's overall innovation DNA from the 1940s to bring them into a high revenue growth through digital initiatives. So this is one thing I wanted to share with you and get your reaction to, Eric. Yeah, it's a great uh, case study. I didn't, I wasn't familiar or aware of this stuff, but um, it reminds me of a topic I believe we covered in last week's uh, hot topics around uh, the customer experience, either the last week or the week before. Um, and we talked about customer experience and the importance of digital transformation, focusing on that. And I think McDonald's is sort of the, one of the masters or pioneers of doing that. And I think this is a great example of continuously looking at technology as a way to do something very deliberate, which is increase the customer experience and do more cross-selling and upselling and all that stuff, um, that drives company value and ROI and, and ultimately customer, better customer experience and better customer satisfaction. So. Um, I think it's just a good reminder that, you know, letting the dog wag the tail rather than the tail wag the dog is really important in digital transformation because too many companies lead with the technology, go pick a tool and then try to figure out how that's going to help their business versus McDonald's sounds like they're looking at ways that they can really rethink their operating model and their customer experience to then selectively and strategically use technology to fix that problem or that opportunity. So 
I think that's a good lesson that we can all take with our digital transformations. Yeah. And and back to that supply chain guide that we just released actually on your top global supply chain list, McDonald's is number four. So if you want some more information about their innovation around that, definitely check out the link below and and download that free asset. Yeah. It talks um, about the top well. 10 supply chains in the world, as well as the top 10 supply chain systems. And there's a lot of I think there might be another top 10 list in there. So again, just showing my bias here. I mean, that supply chain guide is really awesome. I think everyone listening right now should definitely go download that. <laughs> it's very, 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 very good and very dense. Um, I believe it's 35 pages. So lots of information in there kind of for every industry and size. But I wanted to, and just like a trigger warning for this next one, um, Eric, it is full of buzzwords. However, okay. I feel as though um, it's something that that makes a lot of sense to discuss. So this study um, showcases a holistic view of the connected enterprise or an enterprise that's built on connectivity um, and the five steps to digital success that you can actually achieve through being a connective enterprise. And something that I thought was interesting in here um, is there's prerequisites of the connective enterprise rather than focusing on these shiny new tools and aiming for all of these emerging technologies, you have to take internal steps to become more connected um, and focus on three tasks first to become more connected. So I'm going to ask you about this, and then I'm going to share the five steps. So we'll kind of do it in two pieces, if that's good for you. Sure. So digitize. So this looks at various um, ways to create digital data from your existing data and gain kind of that competitive a a edge, excuse me, um, through these database strategies. Um, and then the second one is connect. So a digitized enterprise also needs to connect systems to systems. So we would call this in kind of our narrative as interoperability. It has to be able to talk to the other systems, whether you have a core ERP or best of breed, um, especially looking at legacy systems. As you know, that can be something that is difficult when you have a newer applica application. Um, and then exchange. And this is one I, I thought was pretty cool because it talks about even if you have good connectivity, the third stage of that kind of, as we would say, is really the exchange or how do they communicate and what is the product of that connectivity and that digitization of data. So those are kind of the three prerequisites. Do you agree with those? Would you add any? Would you eliminate any? What's your thoughts on that? No, I think it's a good uh, logical sequence or a logical way of thinking about the different components of what you need. And it also if you follow those that you mentioned, or if you, you sort of stick with that sequence of those buckets of competencies, it forces you to really make sure that you're addressing that as part of your digital transformation, that you're addressing all the key components. So obviously technology through the di digitization um, is maybe the most obvious one, but a, an example of one that may not be so obvious is connected. Because a lot of times organizations think they're going to go find that silver bullet, that one massive ERP system that's just going to do everything for them. And they don't think about the connectivity or the interoperability between different systems. And inevitably, most, if not all organizations end up with multiple systems, whether they like it or not, or whether they want to or not, by necessity, oftentimes they end up with multiple systems. And so having, ensuring that you've got that connectivity, the interoperability, the data flow, the consolidation of information and processes, all that stuff uh, is important. And you, but you only get that if you focus on the connectivity, as you mentioned. Absolutely. And this actually reminds me of a resource that you 
actually put together, which is um, kind of our digital strategy playbook. Um, so we'll, we'll link that below too, because it has this really nice visualization of all of the different work streams that go into that framework that we actually utilize here at Third Stage. So if you haven't seen that, again, another free download, and that one's only six pages, so you won't have to do, you know, textbook reading for that one, but um, another kind of... Yeah, it is, um, but still very, very valuable. So this study argue it, argues that those last two steps are kind of the, the superpower, they call it, of the connected enterprise. And one is automate. So expand the human potential by bringing in processes that automate um, the overall efficiencies. So looking at like RPA or low code, no code um, to really enhance your technology platform to get the most out of it. And then the last one is augment. So a connective enterprise should look for contextual intelligence, as they call it. So basically, it's a digital superpower that delivers optimum support to that human decision makers, um, like automation capabilities, advanced analytics, machine learning, um, having that 70 to 80% of total work required given to you by the data. So we kind of just covered that in chat GPT. Uh, another question, question for the audience, does that make your employees lazy? Hopefully not. But that's really the, the last two that would bring you from not only a connected organization to really a, a digital superpower. So what's your reaction to that? Well, I guess I'm it may not be the intent of your question, but I'm honing in on the does it make your employees lazy uh, comment <laughs> question. And it's a good it's a good point because, uh, you know, I think that it's it's okay for your employees to be lazy, I guess. I, lazy may might not be the right word that I'm thinking of, but um, it is okay for your employees to be more efficient. But I think the key is, is if they're more efficient and they free up a bunch of time because they're using Ch chat GPT and AI, what are you going to do with that excess time to make sure you're getting value out of it? So I think that's the bigger that's the part that's not okay. It's not okay to let them be more efficient without giving them either more work or hiring less people as you go forward and as you grow as a company. Um, so I don't know if that was the intent of your question, but that that was the uh, right where my mind went was uh, was it sort of latched onto that. Yeah, and I'd be curious to hear from the audience too because um, I almost asked that um, in the other question, um, but I want to focus on kind of students. Um, do you think that these or how do, I guess, better question. Let's focus on the positive here, people. How do you ensure that you leverage these emerging technologies that do focus on automation and make sure that your employees are efficient? What are some tactics you can utilize to communicate and fill that time to get that value? So um, drop that in the comments wherever you're joining. Again, we can see um, all of the con comments wherever you're getting this podcast or video today. So uh, definitely interested to hear from you. And while we answer that question, I want to move to our last hot topic that we saved for last here, and that talks about censorship. Um, so interesting story with a kind of behind the scenes look. When we we pick these transformation ground control hot topics as a team. Many times my team and I will source them. Many of the times we'll hear from our consultants or other leadership across the organization. And actually, Eric, you had sent me this one saying we should discuss this, which was called um, how SAP failed their supply chain product. Uh, and it was a Forbes article that was put up. And when I went to go pull source material, it was actually taken down. 
Um, and there had been a Reddit thread about how it's no longer available because it was pretty sharp and direct towards SAP and critical. So we have no evidence of <laughs> why it was taken down, but it was pretty interesting that because it was so critical of, of SAP that it was immediately taken off of Forbes, which does a pretty considerable vetting process when it comes to its publications um, as a, a global news leader. So what do you think kind of happened there, Eric, behind the scenes? Or can you speculate for us around what might be or the power of vendor biases when it comes to critical information? Because you obviously sit in the captain's chair of being the first person to offer transparent and agnostic advice um, that can be critical of big vendors. Yeah, it was. It's an interesting question and interesting dynamic because you know we normally we would have like I would have the article up in front of me as we're filming recording this podcast, right? And I'm sure you would too. You kind of refer to it or whatever. And now that we can't pull it up, now I'm trying to recall everything it said. But I did read it a couple times. It was actually one of our team members that forwarded it to me over the weekend. Uh, he sent me a text that you should read this article, and I read it, and it's really good. Um, and whether or not you agree with it, whether or not it's hundred percent grounded in fact or science, that's a whole nother debate for another time, I suppose. But it did, it, it was basically put out, the, the article was written by someone who I believe is on Forbes Technology Council. And again, if I sound vague and I'm trying to guess and remember what it says, because I don't have the article anymore to look at, it's gone. Uh, it's been taken down off of Forbes. But when I first read the article, I thought this is a really good article. I can't believe it's on Forbes though. That was the first thing I thought. Like, I can't believe Forbes put this, was okay with this because I have to assume that SAP is a big sponsor of Forbes or, you know, at the very least buys ads and is a customer of Forbes. So that was the first thing I thought. And so I guess it's interesting that it did last a few days. It made it up on the website, made it lasted a few days, but then for it to be gone now, um, makes you wonder why, why did you, why did someone take it down? You know, why not? You don't have to agree with it. You could say it's it's garbage or whatever, but why would you completely take it down? I suppose in today's censorship-driven society, maybe that's just the way things are. But I do feel like that the author of this um, article, who is an industry analyst, and, and she's someone that actually, to be candid and to sort of share some of how the sausage is made, um, I was in the process of trying to get her on the show to discuss that article. I wanted her to come on this podcast uh, because it was such an interesting article. And one of the questions I wanted to ask her is, how did you – how did you get away basically of, of for being so candid on a mainstream publication like Forbes? Because presumably, uh, you know, SAP would be a big sponsor. So I guess maybe I answered my own question by, by sort of seeing what, what's happened or transpired since then. But the article was all about, um, it was talking about the product deficiencies of SAP's supply chain offering, in particular, it's integrated business planning offering. And we have a client in fact, it's the same client I was referring to earlier in this episode that is that the one that I was talking about supply chain customization and um, the ROI of customization versus not. It's that same client. They are trying to figure out as part of their SAP implementation whether or not IBP is right for them. And they're leaning towards you know it not being right for them. And they're looking for third-party options and customization that, that would be able to solve that gap. So I forwarded it, you know, I, I forwarded it to our team that's working on the project and said, you might want to share this with our client because this is pretty interesting. And uh, anyway, so the article is about how IBP as a product is not as good at planning as other products out there. And I think she was comparing, if I remember correctly, she was comparing SAP IBP to other best of breed options. So other supply chain focused solutions. Um, I don't, she didn't mention vendors by name. I don't believe she didn't mention uh, Manhattan or JDA, Blue Yonder, 
she, I don't think she mentioned those vendors by name, but it, I got the impression that's who she's talking about or these other soft, these other supply chain software vendors that do better planning on the supply chain side than SAP. And, but then she goes on to analyze why this is, why can SAP sell so much software in particular in supply chain management when the product is inferior was sort of what she was saying. And she goes on to give, this is the really scathing part. She goes on to talk about all the problems in the industry. And it's a lot of the stuff I talk about, but I, I tend to talk about it more from experience or what I'm seeing with clients. She actually had research behind this around um, how there was everything from arrogance. I, I remember she mentioned the word arrogance was one of the five or six, the handful of reasons why this happens is because she basically accused SAP of being an arrogant company. They think that they're better than everyone. And just based on their size, people are just going to settle for less, um, which I hate to say it, but I, I kind of agree with her. Um, I think that is the mentality that SAP and the SAP ecosystem has oftentimes is we're SAP, we're, we're better. Uh, and that's not necessarily grounded in fact. The other one that she called out, which was even more surprising, given that she came from, she, I don't remember what analyst firm or firms she used to work for, but it was one of the big firms like Gardner or Forrester or one of them. And she worked there for a long time and now she's on her own, you know, presumably as sort of like an independent analyst. Um, and she talks about how the industry analyst community is complicit in this. They, they let this happen and they reinforce this bias or this overstated value of SAP because SAP is such a big company and they're such a big customer of the industry analysts that they, they sort of sing the praises of SAP even when their product isn't good. So it, those are the two that I remember that sort of stood out. I wish we could go through all five or six, you know, reasons or whatever, but the article's gone. But I think the bigger question is, is it okay to have these sorts of conversations or is that is that so wrong? And I guess I have trouble getting my arms around. Why is this so wrong? And why would SAP be so upset? And I'm, I have no, nothing to suggest or, or I, I don't know for a fact that SAP got that article taken down, but I can't imagine it was anyone else. I don't know who else would have decided to take that article down other than maybe Forbes and maybe they're afraid of SAP's wrath. But I have to think that SAP somehow was involved in taking that article down. So anyway, if you if you Google, um, what did I Google to find that? Do you remember what you Googled to find that Reddit thread? That, that's always interesting, too, is to go look at the comments because the Reddit thread is still there. Just the article that is in there is gone. So the Reddit uh, thread is how SAP at how SAP failed the supply chain leader. Okay. Um, and in the interesting part about this is there's many people in this thread that defend SAP. Yes. Uh, so, so yeah. So it's not even a conversation that would be that negative. Um, but like, just to give you an example, I'm not an SAP, SAP fan, but this is very much true for my company. And a lot of other companies don't have tech issues. Like they have people and process issues. So to me, it was a very healthy conversation around it until all of a sudden it was like, and it's gone. <laughs> right. And then you have people being like, even in a, a global other languages, I had to do some Google translating in there to figure out like what other people are saying. Um, but it, I mean, it's a, a very mysterious situation. So I, I need to hear the reaction from the audience to see what do you think happened? Because so many of our conversations can be critical of SAP, but can also, you know, we have a lot of user based in SAP, a lot of clients that utilize SAP. So it'd be really interesting to hear what you kind of thought happened there with that. Um, so a very, very interesting development. So I have a business idea for people listening that might want to start a business <laughs> and if they're interested in technology and digital transformation is start an independent analyst firm that takes absolutely no money 
from software vendors, sort of like with third stages. We, we take absolutely no money from the software vendors. So we have no, I don't want to say there's no consequences because vendors do get mad at us sometimes. I think we're good at sort of smoothing things over and, and sort of uh, preserving or, or maintaining informal relationships with the vendors, but we do not take any sort of mission or commission from them. And, and the only money we make is off of our, our clients. And, and YouTube ads, by the way, that's the only other thing I'll, I'll say. So I guess technically a vendor could have a YouTube ad on my channel and, you know, maybe I'm making some money off it, but I don't know who they are because I don't see who the advertisers are. So anyway, uh, my point is if you start an independent analyst firm and all you do is just charge your end customers for your content, your research, and don't take any sort of money from the software vendors, I'd be curious to see, A, if there's a niche for that and B, you know, how that might change the conversation. Cause I think this, this uh, woman that wrote this article was onto something, I think, you know, and I don't, you don't have to agree with her, but I think she's onto something to really challenge it. Like, why is this happening in the industry? And we have to look at the dark side of the industry. If we're going to navigate our own transformation successfully, that's what's in the best interest of the industry. It's not in the best interest to hide it and say, you're wrong. We're taking the article down. It doesn't make us look good. Um, and even for Forbes to do that, I, I, I blame Forbes just as much as I blame SAP, if not more, because Forbes is ultimately the one that probably chose to have it taken down. Um, and who knows whether she violated editorial guidelines or whatever. I don't know. You know, there might be more to it that I'm not aware of, but I do think that there's a opportunity in the industry for an industry analyst firm. So that's my free consulting advice for anyone interested in starting a business right now. That's, that's valuable advice. Cause aren't you like a thousand dollars an hour or something usually, or, <laughs> uh, not quite, but it, it's, uh, <laughs> about half that. <laughs> right. Right. Well, good. Well, good. Well, I know we have a lot of other um, information to get to in this ep episode. It's very fun, yet very tactically dense um, that we're going to go through a lot of additional um, data and business process and business process mining content as well. So I'm just excited to get to the rest of this. I would definitely recommend joining with a paper and pen and look at all of those supporting links down there because we kind of offer those as something you can distribute through your network or have as additional resources. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we're excited for this next conversation. I, and we've talked about BI and analytics on the show before, but we haven't done so in the context of, of sports. and, and uh, you know, one of the movies that I think is is a great movie, especially if you like sports and data, um, which I don't know if that makes me nerdy or, or what, but I'll, I'll take it, whatever it is. Um, but if you like sports and data, uh, a great movie out there is called Moneyball. Uh, it stars Brad Pitt. It came out probably 10 years ago. And it's about the analytics behind um, sports and how this person, I think it's based on a true story. Brad Pitt plays a guy that's all in analytics and trying to predict what makes a great athlete or a winning athlete, a winning team, all that stuff. So I thought it'd be fun to talk to our guest who is also very much into sports and data, talk to him from the perspective of uh, sports and how BI and analytics is used and can be used in the sports industry, uh, but also then shift gears and talk about um, the, the business world as well. So try to make it fun and uh, digestible in that way. So we're going to have Anthony, Adelike on the show uh, here in just a moment, and uh, he's a director of data analytics at the firm he works for. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with him. And also later in the show, as you mentioned, Kyler, we'll have Wayne Holtham, who will be the guest after Anthony, who's going to be on talking about the power of process, business process management, or I did it again. It's not business process management. It's business process mining, which is very specific. It's a part of business process management, uh, business process management in digital transformation. So we'll, we'll have that in our last segment later in the show. So in the meantime, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. 
If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 120. My name is Eric Kimberling with Kyler Cheatham, my co-host. We're both from Third Stage Consulting, and we publish podcasts every Wednesday uh, on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. You can find it streaming every Wednesday uh, morning, U.S. time, afternoon in uh, Africa and Europe, and evening in Asia Pacific. And you can also find us on audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So I'm excited for our next guest, uh, Anthony Adelike, who is the Director of Data Analytics at a company called PCI Government Services based in the United States. And I uh, thought it'd be great to have him on the show to talk about analytics and business intelligence, not just in the business world, but maybe to start off, we want to sort of dive into some content that he's passionate about that looks at trends and predictive analytics in the world of sports. In fact, this is how I found Anthony. I didn't know who he was until I found him on TikTok. Um, just, I think I was just doing research or I might've been flipping through TikTok randomly one day and I, I kept seeing his content show up in my feed and he would do this really cool data analysis of what is the biggest predictor of success in the NFL, you know, the American football draft, for example. Uh, he had another video I came across that talks about um, how the stature and the build of 100 meter sprinters, Olympic sprinters have changed in recent decades. And, and he talks about the, the data behind that. And so it, it's a, clearly a passion project for him to put out this data about sports, but he does it for a living as well in a, in a business um, context. So I thought it'd be great to bring the two together, start off by talking about sports and data and in a field where it's all about winning and losing, it's very cut and dry, and really apply that sort of mindset and mentality into the world of business and understand how, how we can do, do that in the world of business as well. So uh, with all that being said, Anthony, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure is mine. So excited for today's conversation. This is a totally different conversation than, than I've done before on these live streams. And, and you and I have been sort of talking about this for months now about having you on the show and what kind of topics and threads we could talk about and questions I could ask you. So uh, appreciate, uh, appreciate you being here. But before I dive into some of these questions about BI and analytics, maybe just tell us a little bit about, about you and your background. Okay, sure. Um, my name is Anthony Delake. I am the Director of Data Analytics for PCI Government Services, which is a government consulting organization here in the DC area. Specifically, we're in Reston. Uh, some of you might know that Reston is the Silicon Valley of the East Coast. Um, so yeah, well, um, I, I have been there for about three years now. Um, so far, so good. And I've really helped grow the data analytics practice and some of the data analytics projects. Um, I like to think of my career at, in data analytics as a series of very fortunate accidents. You know, uh, if you predict to me 
you had told me five years ago that I would be, uh, you know, a, a Power BI expert and teaching people. I, I would have said, what? What are you talking about? Um, but but a lot of very fortunate, interesting things happened to my career. And sometimes your career is just about being in the right place at the right time, um, being part of this data explosion that we're going through right now. We'll talk about that more in the, um, uh, we'll talk about what's going on in the government world. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's I, I'm enjoying the wild ride, but but it's really been a lot of fun. Like I said, I live in Washington, D.C. I have my wife and I'll say 1.8 children because um, I'm about two months away from being a, a, a dad to a second kid. Cool. Uh, Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And um, and I have my oh, she's right behind me, my 12 year old dog. So she's uh, been a great one. So you got it. You've got a full house there. It sounds like a, a very full house. Right. Well, well, great. Well, that's that's great to great to have you here. So you you mentioned I'm just curious, you mentioned um, you mentioned how you didn't really think you were going to end up in this field. How, how did you end up in, in the world of uh, analytics? And and it, just to back up for a second, I, I don't recall if you just said it now, but I remember seeing on your profile that you, you studied law originally and yes. then you got into <laughs> analytics. So how did you sort of how did you make that nonlinear <laughs> adjustment from law to analytics? How did that progression? Yeah. How did you get into this field? I am a lawyer. Um, I, I went to law school, passed the bar. I still pay my bar dues, even though I don't <laughs> practice law um, uh, per se. Um, but yeah, it, it's been an interesting path. So I was one of those people, I graduated in 2003. Um, and that, there was like a soft recession back then. And everyone was like, oh, do you, you know, jobs aren't really purple. So let's go to law school. And I started law school sort of uh, being 50-50 about whether or not I wanted to practice law. Uh, by the time I graduated law school, I was 100% certain I didn't want to practice law. Um, not because it wasn't, it's not a good feel, it's just, um, it, I don't think it really suited a lot of my talents and my interests. Um, so I went, um, passed the bar, uh, passed the bar on the first try, and, um, you know, I've, I've been a lawyer since uh, for, I don't know, over a decade now. Um, but yeah, it just wasn't really sort of my interest. I do sort of uh, backing up. My undergrad was in uh, international economics and finance. So mm -hmm. I do have some quantitative uh, abilities there. Uh, a lot of people joke that law, people go to law school because they can't do math. And that was the furthest from truth. I, I always did pretty pretty well in math. Um, so at least in my case. Um, so I think I sort of found some of the, um, the practice of law a little bit um, hard for me to swallow because, you know, in math, there is an answer in most cases in law there's everything the, the the typical answer in law is it depends you know right. so um, i think conceptually it was just um not really some sort of my interest again I, most of my friends are lawyers um it's a great field it just wasn't for me um but i and after law school i went into consulting and i, and I was always in, in consulting usually some sort of financial consulting um i worked primarily for government agencies or supporting government agencies in the dc area um, and after doing that for a few years, uh, I actually worked specifically more in the procurement space. So there was some bleed over of, of law, you know, making contracts, but also sort of analyzing the financial implications of those contracts, making sure the government is buying the right tools at the right price and helping them evaluate those types of things. Um, then I, I went and got, I got an MBA from University of Maryland College Park, which is one of the I would probably say one of the top better schools in, in, in the United States. And um, I think that really solidified my move into data analytics. Very cool. Yeah, that's yeah. a that's a cool, uh, like many of us, a cool story of how you sort of stumbled into something that played your strengths, but wasn't necessarily part of the master plan uh, from the start. It's a very interesting. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I guess as we dive into it, then um, 
for those of us joining here today that maybe don't have a deep background in business intelligence or analytics, maybe just give us, could you give us just a basic sort of a, a layman's overview of what exactly business intelligence and analytics are? Sure. Um, I'll sort of dissect those two things. Business analytics, business intelligence and business analytics are, are, are related, but, but um, one is a subset of another. So business intelligence essentially just refers to the technologies, processes, and strategies used by organizations to collect their data so that it can now turn into informed business decisions. Um, so an example might, for, might be for a coffee shop. They want to know, first of all, things like how much are we selling on a daily basis? When are we selling them? Um, you know, um, what is the profile of our, of our, of our customers? Okay, so you, you sort of collect all those, all those information. And then um, the next step is when you start actually doing analyzing, analyzing the data. And, and analysis can take many different forms, but if I would say the analytics side is when you, that, that refers to the presenting of data in a way that helps your business understand um, your performance, identify trends, and then help you make data better data-driven decisions. Right. Yeah. Very good. And it's it's an interesting uh, arena or domain just because so many organizations have had decades now of automation and some sort of digitalization of their, of their processes to be able to capture this data. So now you finally have these powerful tools that if you do it right, you can actually make sense of some of that data that you've been accumulating or hoarding, depending on how you look at it uh, as an organization <laughs> over, over decades. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many organizations that have so much untapped data um, at, at their disposal. Uh, and I think that's what makes this field and time um, very exciting because uh, I think people are really starting to understand the, the power of data and how it can help, you know, transform your business, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. So just turning to our audience here, um, just giving a quick shout out to people joining here live. Um, we've got Ryan from Denver. Uh, thanks for being here, Ryan. James from Hereford, UK. Uh, Caesar from Mexico, uh, Precious from London, England, Mohammed from Iran. Um, I'll call him Bon because I, I can't pronounce his full name, but uh, Bon from Hellebron, Germany. Uh, I've got someone from Alberta, Canada, Bloomford, Bloomfield, Connecticut, India, India, Alberta, North Carolina, Daytona Beach, Florida, UAE. A lot of lot of different places here. So thanks for thanks for joining uh, throughout the world today. Glad to have you all here. Um, and uh, as I mentioned before, if you have questions as we go here, please feel free, feel free to drop those in the chat at any point, and I'll, I'll start pulling from the audience questions here uh, in just a couple moments. So, so you've given us that overview of BI and analytics and sort of how you got into this field. And what I thought we'd do today is, is uh, I thought it'd be an interesting contrast, if you will, to talk about sports and how analytics play such a big role in sports. And what's fascinating about sports is not only is it entertaining to watch, and a lot of us are interested in sports, and maybe even more so than, than business. Um, but watching and talking about data in the context of sports is super fascinating because it's it's cut and dry. Either you're winning or losing, and it's very uh, clear whether or not your data analytics are working or if mm -hmm. you're, you're making the best use of it. And then I want to dive into that first, and then I want to shift gears and talk about your role, sort of your day job, doing business analytics or, or analytics and BI within the world of government, which in some cases you could see as sort of the other side of the spectrum, which is, you know, there, it's not a clear cut winning and losing sort of proposition. It's not a clear cut profit motive like you might have in the public sector, in the private sector. So it'd be kind of interesting to talk through that contrast and figure that if government can find ways to leverage some of the sports stuff that we're going to talk about, then chances are pretty high that most organizations can can leverage BI and analytics in a similar way. So. Before I get into that that latter part of it, though, 
um, I mentioned before too, how I found you on TikTok and you have some really cool videos that dive into the analytics of different sports things. Like the one I just saw last night or yesterday when I was preparing for today was one about uh, track and field and how the, the stature or the physical build and the physical attributes of sprinters have evolved and changed over the years. You have another series and yet a bunch of them that you have in the, the way I first found you was some of the ones that you have around the NFL or the National Football League, which is mm-hmm. American, American football if you're not in the U.S. or don't know what the NFL is. Um, so maybe let's start with the NFL and, and American football. What are some of the, you know, if we just start at a high level, um, what are some of the most interesting things that you found through the use of analytics? Um, what are some of the interesting uh, findings that you found in, in your analysis over the years? Oh, sure. Um, well, for sure. <laughs> I, I, I'm still sort of laughing that the fact that you found me from TikTok and, and it's uh, I, I'm laughing at myself because, if you you know, three years ago, if you had told me oh, well, two years ago, I don't know how long my TikTok page is around, but like told me that I would have a TikTok page. I'd be like, what are you talking about? Get out of here. But um, I did have but I did get on TikTok. I became very addicted, but I, I repurposed it for a lot of my um um, data analysis. It's just a, a passion project of mine. Um, I, I I love American football. It's um, one of my favorite sports to watch. Um, yeah, you know, um, I, I, I'm a big Dallas Cowboys fan. For those of you here in the United States, so please um, don't don't, don't, don't. <laughs> just kidding. I, I, get, I get that response all the time. Um, but, but I, I will say that the U.S. Um, the NFL in particular, it has really. Don't think there's any other league in in um, in, full, in in any anywhere in the world that that uses data harnesses data as much as the NFL does, uh, and and everything they do is uh, they they everything is measured, you know. Um, so, um, a lot of my videos you saw centered around what's called the NFL Combine, and the NFL Combine is essentially uh, a place where every all the players um, come in from the U.S. universities where they play, um, which essentially is, for lack of a better word, a farm system for the NFL. Um, so like all the good play, all the players playing in college and then those that are deemed good enough are invited to the combine um, to showcase their talents because there is a big difference between being really good in college and or, or excelling in a certain system and being able to go to the uh, play in the National Football League. So the National Football League has this whole exercise where people go in and and they tested on a whole series of, of, of different tests oh different tests on different physical um exercises everything from the 40 which is a see how fast they can run a 40-yard dash to um how soon how how high they can jump vertically how far they can jump horizontally um that's called the broad jump and um also how how many times they can bench press and, and do some agility drills and i don't know any other sports league that has that kind of organization um, and, and, and thought process behind how they choose players. I, I think a lot of the other teams, a lot of the leagues, I'm also a big English Premier League guy. They, they sort of just look at kids um, growing up and see how they play and, and then des- and decide who's going to uh, be on the team. But um, the NFL does a lot more than that. They Not only do they watch them for copious amounts of tape and analyze their college stats, but also come in and, and physically test them and oftentimes what you find is that there are people who are maybe were marginal players in the university system uh, based on the tests they're now the, the one of the first few selected and, and and vice versa you see a guy who's 
very productive in, in, in a controlled setting, which is which is university. But they they are they either are selected very late or, or not at all because they didn't meet, meet some of the different physical tests. And um, in terms of key insights that I found, uh, you know, this is something that can be that can be translated to business as well. Is there are a lot of things that we consider are are important but aren't really as important um, in, in, in the bigger scheme of things. You know, there, are, there might be other things that actually are bigger indicators of, of success for, and then a key example might be the 40 yard dash. So one of the things that everyone cares about is how fast can the player run, you know, 40 yard dash from stop, from being in the, being in the starting position to the end. And, and that gets a lot of discussion. Oh man, this guy is so fast. He runs a four three, he runs a four three. And, and people think that your speed actually dictates what kind of football player will be. But my data actually found that that's not always the case. That the better, the best predictor of what kind of player would be would be is how far you can jump, your broad jump. Yeah, I mean a lot of people don't think about that, but it really what it shows is your your explosiveness, your, your leg strength. So there are a lot of things that are sexy stats that you really when you sort of take away. Um, um, peel back the onion they're not always that um they're not always related to your, your final goal I mean oftentimes what you do find is that people who are very fast also have the ability to to jump high but if you have to choose one you want to you jump higher or far but you want to go with a person who has more jumping ability than just raw speed because you know this is the NFL you have 11 players on the team nobody just runs in a straight line I mean like it's you don't have that ability sometimes you're gonna have to run into people run around people um so uh that negates your your the usefulness of your of your forty time. So that's just one example that I found, and it's just something that um, I, I've, I've, it's been a passion project of mine. Um, I love the NFL draft. Um, the NFL Combine is probably one of my favorite um, TV activities, and um, I there's luckily there's a lot of data out there, and I can, um, you know, analyze it and, and and create cool dashboards around it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Ryan, Ryan on LinkedIn made an interesting comment, which is a, it's a good comment, but it's also funny because uh, I recently saw the video of my kids showed me the video of uh, Tom Brady running the 40 yard dash uh, in his com in his combine. And you would, you watch that video, you would never guess that that's Tom Brady. There's no way in the world that that's Tom Brady running that 40 yard dash. <laughs> and I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it's super funny. He looks really slow. He just looks clumsy. He just doesn't look like a professional athlete, let alone arguably the greatest, you know, NFL player ever to play. Um, arguably, of course, arguably, not, yeah. I don't want to argue with Troy Aikman and, uh, <laughs> you know, all the, all the great Cowboys quarterbacks over the years. But uh, yeah, so th I, I think that's super interesting. And I think it's a, it's a good reminder that the, the things that you think might be, you know, qualitatively might be the most important things oftentimes aren't. And that's the beauty of data is it, it sometimes tells a different story than what your gut, your gut instincts might tell you. We're here with Anthony Adelike talking about the power of business intelligence and analytics. We've got a lot more to cover. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. When I wake up, well, I know I'm going to be, I'm going to be the man who wakes up next to you. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. 
you'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 120. You can find new episodes of this show streaming to LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter on Wednesdays. You can also find audio podcast platforms carrying this show every Wednesday as well. So be sure to check us out and subscribe to the channel or to the show if you don't already. And we are here in the midst of a conversation with Anthony Adelike talking about the power of business intelligence and analytics. We've got a lot more to cover, so let's jump back into it. And this is a true, you know, this is a comment or a question that, that applies to sports and to just organizational management and leadership in general. But what about the chemistry? You know, how do you, you know, you've got these measurable attributes that you you focus on in in your your analysis. Do you ever look at things that are harder to measure? Like, um, you know, a lot of times the NFL or any professional sports team, it's hard to create that chemistry. Uh, you know, you've got great individual players, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be a great team. And are there sort of those, I hate to say qualitative, because that negates the whole point of today's conversation. We're talking about quantifiable stuff, but do you, yeah, you know, yeah. is that something you ever look at? Yeah, I mean, that that's really hard, hard to, to incorporate. Yeah, I mean, my, my belief is if it can be measured, then, you know, maybe you shouldn't take into consideration. And I do understand that you know, there are always some intangibles, you know. Um, there are lots of players who, who test off the charts that, you know, don't always do well, et cetera. And some of it might just be a function of, um, you know, scheme. Um, yeah, this person is good, but, but is this person playing to the strengths of your scheme? You know, um, when people say chemistry, some of it is being able to identify where to best deploy people, you know. Um, so, so. I, I I would love to be able to do some of that, you know, sentiment analysis, I guess, about how, yeah. how um, you know, how to do to, to incorporate some of the uh, intangibles. I mean, that's where like coaching matters. You know, I think it's, you probably want to spend more time on who is going to be the coach rather than um, you know looking at some things like chemistry because a good coach sort of is does a better job of being able to to change yeah. the the dynamic of the team. That's a good point. That's a good point. That's not really up to the up to the individual players necessarily to create that culture or to create that chemistry it's, it's the leader or the coach you know in your yeah. organization or on a, on a professional team that's a good good mm -hmm. point um so in addition to the broad jump the importance of the broad jump and the lesser importance than we might think of the 40-yard dash what are some other findings that you've found as, as we talk about um, american football since we're on that topic um and then i'll shift gears and ask you some questions about track and field as well and some of the analysis you've done there but are there other interesting findings that you've seen over the years or in your your analysis of, of these different data sets? Yeah, sure. So um, I ended up creating this dashboard and I'll see if I can share my screen here. Sure. Um, and um, one, this, this, you might follow this under the um, tool of being saying, duh, but um, height is one of the biggest predictors of whether or not you're going to be drafted and also your, your long-term um, um, success in, in the league. I mean, it's, it's, I hate to say it, sorry, uh, but, um, you know, and, but there is like a certain, um, it's it, obviously excess height doesn't really help you, but there is like a certain like height range, typically anywhere from like six foot to about six foot four is like the, the sweet spot of where you want people to be. Um, anything bigger than that, anything higher than that is uh, you start to negate a, a 
athletic ability. And, and that's some of the things that I found. And that is across a lot, a lot of different positions. Um, I created this thing called um, NFL Reality Check. Basically, what are the odds of you being drafted based on certain measurables? And, um, you know, so and again, this this uh, obviously is very different for um, all the different positions. So if you're, if I want to play my, what I played when I, when I was in college, which is, uh, let me go. Uh, if I want to play, uh, say linebacker, I want to play linebacker, but if I start changing these attributes here, uh, you see here's somewhere between 70, seven inches and, and 75 inches. Um, that's not very high, but if I start going, um, and if I increase some of these attributes, basically you start to see that your odds of being drafted become a lot higher. You know, mm. that's, this might not seem like a, like a lot, but if you have a 14% chance of being drafted, that's, and this is considering the whole basket of players who get invited to the combine. That's pretty good. You know, um, you know, so that's 10 and, and keep in mind the, the people that get invited to the combine are the elite of the elite of the elite at college athletes. So they come in and, but if you start seeing some of these different attributes, like if you, um, you know, if you run a four, 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 two as a linebacker, you're definitely getting drafted, you know? Um, and if you're within this height range, but if I was to change this down to, let's say, you see, if, if I say you're, um, you know, between 64 and 67 inches, then there's no way you're going to get drafted as a linebacker, if, despite your uh, excellent um, 40 times. So there's some things, height is really a big uh, factor and, and it makes sense given the context of the, of the other football, the all football, all NFL. Lots of big guys. You need to be able to move around and see how things see the field. And if you if you don't have the height that's needed, you're not going to be um, very, very productive. So that's just one example. Yeah. So is height more important than speed, or or more? I don't want to say more important, but a better predictor or. How, how would you kind of rate that or compare that to the the jump? You know, you're talking about the broad jump being one of the biggest indicators. Well, I would say height is very closely related to speed <laughs> because right. and it's something else that goes to my with my track and field analysis is that, look, taller people are, are faster because they can take um, uh, they have longer, longer stride length and, and, they, and they can take less steps. Um, see Usain Bolt, um, you know, he's six five. And, and I'm, I'm, I did this analysis because uh, I'm going to take this back to, to myself personally. I, when I was in college, I ran track and I was always dissuaded from running the hundred because I'm six foot two. And I was always told by my coaches, oh, no, you can't run the hundred because you don't have a good start. You have to have, run the 400. I did the I did well in the 400, but anybody who's ever run the 400, it's a brutal race. It's incredibly painful. I, I love it, but but it's a very brutal race. But that was completely misguided because um, one, you know, taller people are faster in general, and the start honestly is not really that important in in the hundred meter dash. So that was just some coaches using some of their old school thinking, um, not necessarily relying on what the data was saying, and, and and advising me on what events I should run. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So that that tool you were just showing, and I'll, I'll pop it back up here um, just real quickly. Is this is this Power BI or what? This is, what? Power, this is Power BI. Yes, this is a Power BI web service, and um, I create these little toggles here that show um, so players can use uh, anybody can use it and go in and, and and analyze what their odds of being drafted are based on different attributes. Okay. And what are the sources of data that you use as inputs here? Like, are, is it public information, or are you having to manually go? kind of capture this data based on what you see? 
I mean, most it's it's public. I, I get it from a variety of data sources. Then I do a join in Excel. Then I get them all in Excel. Then I use the um, for those of us who are Excel quants here, use an X lookup using the um, um, the, the the prospect's name as a unique identifier, and then I, I join all the data into one into one big spreadsheet and I collect it over the years. Okay, very cool. So it's just it goes to show that you know this is information that. It isn't your data that you're you're capturing internally, or you know, with yourself. You're you're sort of going to other data sources to consolidate this data. So that's a that's a pretty cool reminder that there's a lot you can do with data, not only that you have internally, but but third party sources as well. If you have a tool like Power BI, that a, a business intelligence tool that allows you to to sort of slice and dice and analyze that that information. Um, that's very, very cool. Um, now, what about uh, track and field what are some of the findings there uh that, that you found in, in the world of track and field yeah, very interesting so um yeah over the years and i just i talked about this a little bit um over the years if you start to analyze the 100 meter olympic runners um two things are happening they're getting taller and they're getting bigger um mm. and which sort of defies you might think is you might define logic right okay like how can somebody be taller and bigger but still be fat how can people be taller and bigger and still be faster well they make a couple of things um one um they've been a there's been significant development in training techniques significant development in musculature so you're starting to see significantly more muscular athletes if you take you look at athletes from like when jesse owens ran to um you know the last olympics i mean you see these guys they all look like superheroes now um compared to the very like lean guys back in the um you know in, in the jesse owen era and, and before um so people look very different now and, and another thing too that i found is and I actually tested this on myself because uh, I still run in the masters competition. So I, so I run, um, you know, competitively and I noticed a lot that I was, I was getting heavier, but my times were getting better. And I was like, what's going on here? And really it's not so much about weight. It's really more about body fat. So uh, body fat is actually one of the bigger uh, predictors. So that's one of those things that you might think, of, oh, well, if somebody is, getting bigger no there's no way they could be faster but if they're in bigger still moving well and they have the same or less body fat they are going all things being equal they're going to be faster hmm. so um yeah it, it's just one of those things where like if you do the data you sometimes you have to do a deeper dive into your data to really understand what are some of the contributing factors in in um that are changing um that's producing a certain outcome. I can't just say, hey, look, you know, just go keep lifting weights, get big, get muscular. But if that's affecting your body fat percentage, then you're not going to get faster. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's interesting. It is in some ways counterintuitive because I would have assumed shorter, smaller, more nimble, you know, that's going to be better. But uh, that's but it, it, now that you describe and explain it, what the data shows, that, that also makes sense that more muscle mass, less fat, bigger size, more explosiveness, you know, that, I assume that translates into more strength and explosiveness uh, that would make you faster too. Exactly. Uh, they have to be, have more muscle endurance. So they only get as tired as, as the smaller guys who are less uh, muscled. So yeah, a whole series yeah. of factors. Right. That's very interesting. Now, so these are some of your findings from the world of sports. And, and again, it's, it's in some ways easier for us to get our heads around some of this data because you can look at the results and know is, is my team good? Is that player good? Are they winning or losing? You know, it's a, it's a little bit more of a black and white cut and dry sort of proposition, but your day job is doing this sort of 
data analysis and using BI tools for government entities. So, yeah. and I, in my mind, maybe I'm wrong and maybe I have data to dispute, uh, to refute what I'm saying here, but, but it, it feels like in the government space, it's sort of like the other extreme, which is it's not as cut and dry, whether or not you're quote unquote winning or succeeding in government. So what are, what are some examples of, um, uh, ways that you see your clients and that you train your clients in the government and public sector to use data and, and to maybe have that sort of mentality or more of that mentality that sports franchises might have. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, um, it, it's not all on me. I, I'm, I'm going to take it a, a few years back, and um, there actually has been a big push in, in within the government um, to actually start making better use of data and mm -hmm. also start making um, essentially data-driven decisions. Because uh, I just told you the example, uh, you know, you just gave a good example. Where, where you might have an organization where somebody in the organization is an expert at something and you know they, they go back to them and they say hey you know what do you think about this potential strategy we're trying to execute and he or she i'll just call him charlie in this case charlie goes back to his old well of knowledge and does the exact same thing he's doing for the last 20 30 years and says oh well we should probably employ this strategy but in reality the, the data might not support that you know um, i gave the example of you know my coach is telling me that i couldn't run something i couldn't run 100 meters because Shorter athletes were better, but but the data doesn't support that. They they just thought that that was something that they, that they intuitively knew. But sometimes you have to go to the actual data. What does the data right. say? And can you can and that support? Uh, can it be supported? So um, take a few years back. They there was um, in 2018, and I, I'll look at it up right now. There was the um, something called the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act of 2018. And what this did was, uh, and it was enacted by the, by the U.S. Congress, and it essentially created the chief data officer role within the federal government. So there is actually now uh, a role of the chief data officer, and, he, and it's the responsibility for he or she to make sure that the federal government is tapping into their data and, and being able to make the best decisions. And if you start looking at any of the strategic plans, you know, fast forward a few years, start looking at any of the strategic plans for any government agency, I dare you just look it up, like let's start from 2022, um, you're gonna see, you're gonna see the word data show, show up a few times. You're gonna see data decisions, data, data decision-making, um, data analytics, data analysis, all those words are gonna start showing up. And there ha really has been a big effort uh, to ensure that the U.S. government is is making you know, better, better data-driven decisions. Um, for example, another example is if you go on USA Jobs, which is the government platform for uh, how people can apply to work for the U.S. government. If, I remember in 2018 when I first started with Power BI, I if you go, I went in there and I typed in the word Power BI, and nothing came up. Hmm. I typed in Tableau, nothing came up. Now, fast forward a few years, there. Are hundreds of jobs that have Power BI and Tableau. And those are the two um, biggest movers in the, in, in, the, in the data visualization industry. And you're gonna see lots of jobs there. So so there really has been a concerted effort with, within the federal government to start making um, use of all the data that they have. Um, let me talk about my role. Um, so what I do is I help, I work primarily well, I, I was, I was going to say I work primarily in procurement space, but that's not true. I work in, I support a couple of other contracts, uh, but I, I help government agencies basically present their information in in Microsoft Power BI. Um, so I take all their data from their data warehouse. Um, 
um, meet with different stakeholders, try to understand what is most important to them, create visualizations around that. And also, um, I do some stuff in the back end, do some queries um, in a tool called Microsoft Power Query. And, and I go in there and um, basically uh, you know, do some, some columns, um, so some new columns or some calculations that help uh, basically better inform what their data is saying. You know, um, yeah. And also, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Are they mostly um are they mostly using sort of legacy older legacy systems that they're pulling the data from? I, I know you mentioned data warehouse is one source, but is there sort of like a standard or a, or a typical average profile of a government entity and where they're getting the data from? So in other words, are they using BI tools as a substitute for modernizing truly modernizing the systems they have or, or is it sort of a mix of both or how does that look? Yeah, I'll say it's, it's, a, it's a mix of both. I mean, um, again, it, all, it really all varies from government agency to government agency. You know, um, every agency has a different mission, so the types of data that they collect um, is very different. Or, um, you know, um, for example, the the Veterans Administration will collect very different data than the Department of Agriculture. You know, um, so so the, so this, but but um, one of the challenges I do see consistently around government is um, the ability to normalize their data. So what that means is, um, is there a way that you can essentially go back to, and tap into all your historical data and then say, okay, this is information that I wanna see here. I wanna see the, let's just choose, I'm gonna make up some fake, fake data in agriculture. I wanna see um, cows. I wanna in one column, I wanna see chicken, um, poultry in one another column. I wanna see sheep in another column and I wanna see farms where that, that raise these animals in another column um, that type of information could have been collected but would have been collected in many different ways over the years so mm -hmm. how do you go back and normalize all that data you know some people call it bovine you know some people call it chickens some people call it um rams you know like what information are you trying to collect and how can you normalize all that that really is that that is incredibly complex I, I, i'm not doing any justice by how 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 uh, well i'm how little i'm just talking about it but that really has been probably the biggest challenge I, that i see with a lot of government agencies um a lot of them have done a good job of trying to go back and sort of like restructure their data to allow for some of this like um, querying and and, and and analysis and and you know now being able to put into different bi tools but um that that is uh, really still the the, the challenge that a lot of coverage is still based on. We're here with Anthony Adelike talking about the power of business intelligence and analytics. We've got a lot more to cover. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello. 
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 120. You can find new episodes of this show streaming to LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter on Wednesdays. You can also find audio podcast platforms carrying this show every Wednesday as well. So be sure to check us out and subscribe to the channel or to the show if you don't already. And we are here in the midst of a conversation with Anthony Adelike talking about the power of business intelligence and analytics. We've got a lot more to cover, so let's jump back into it. Gassan on LinkedIn has a similar comment or, or kind of a, something along that same thread, which is BI becomes a challenge when multiple systems exist that interface but do not integrate in real time. Is that some, you know, is that a dynamic you've seen or anything you would add to that? 100%, you know, 100%, you know, so um, it's not just, you have to be also like, in, in the best environment, you would have your BI tool, whether it's Tableau, Power BI, um, and it would read uh, a, a specific data source, and that would be seamless. The data would just be fed into Power BI, Power BI will, will spit it up and give you the visualizations. That That is an ideal world. Um, what I find is that that's really the case because to your point, you know, there might be some legacy systems that your tool can't tap into, or maybe your, your data has to be now exported from whatever system and then put into like Excel or CSV file and then put into your, um, your, your BI tool. So it really all depends. Um, uh, it, it's, it, that is the, the ideal situation doesn't really exist in many cases. Yeah. Right. That's why I have a job. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. So there's, uh, I, I want to come to the audience questions here, some some additional questions. And uh, as expected, the, the sports uh, analytics piece of it has generated some questions and comments here. Um, and I'll try to summarize this. Unfortunately, it won't let me show the entire comment here, but this is from Matthew on LinkedIn. And Matthew says, football is truly about matchups. The analyst, the data analyst has to find the small advantages in those key matchups. The variables depend for each division and conference. For example, it snows a lot in the Northeast during the playoffs. So the need for a fast player, let me continue here. So the need for a fast player is not as important for a team that loses in the playoffs each year when they play in the snow. A player with more strength or balance would be more beneficial. Would you guys agree? So is that something you've looked at as like weather or geographic location? And, and does that do some of those factors that you've analyzed? I imagine there's probably data you could analyze if you haven't, but have you, have you looked at that and, and uh, seen any patterns there? Um, not specifically, but but generally that that backs up some of the theories that I said. Like I mean, um, when I talk about the jumping ability, um, really football is a power game. You know, speed is nice, but it's a power game first. You know, you have big men pushing each other, and and then you you know somebody tries to tackle you. Can you um, push them back, or or can, or can you hold your balance when you're pushed? So really, it's it's, it's a power game. You know, like you nobody. If, if it was a speed game, then all the Olympic athletes would be making millions of dollars in in, in the in the NFL. But but they it, you just don't really always have that ability to just like start running in a straight line because they're you know they're eleven guys to, um, going after you. Uh, right. But yeah, it's it's yeah, I mean that that makes perfect sense. Um, and that goes back to some of the things talk about with with, um, with culture and and um and system. Like you have to know what system you're trying to deploy and what players will help you within that system. You know, do you have, are you maximizing people's talents based on um, whatever environment you're in or whatever limitations you have on your team? Yeah. And kind of what, what your strategy is, you know, like a, a sports team that's going to value the running game and size and using brute force to, you know, get small yardage, but kind of wear down the defense of the other team. That's a different mindset than the, the, the West coast offenses. They're those high speed, 
Joe Montana, you know, old San Francisco 49er style offense where you're spreading the field and getting receivers down the field. And, you know, it's all it, that that's where speed, I would imagine, becomes a little bit more important in those mm-hmm. cases. But it, it a lot of it would depend on your strategy, I suppose. So I forgot to ask you this earlier. So um, based on your analysis, um, I'm going to give you a hypothetical situation involving me. So I'm 49 years old. I'm five foot nine. <laughs> I weigh 170 pounds and never played uh, competitive football. What are my odds of getting drafted? Uh, would you say? <laughs> uh, let's let's uh, let's let's see here. Let's select all. Um, what what did you say? Five oh, five foot nine. I'm five foot nine. I, I can't. Five, you're, you're probably going to break the model. I, I feel bad. I'm going to make you break the model here. It's not going to be able to analyze this. But uh, let's, 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 just, let's just throw in 69 to 69. You know, let me spot you another inch. I say seventy inches, and and you well, weigh how much? Five ten, uh, one seventy. Okay, let's just say, depending on how many burritos you've eaten, let's just say one seventy to one seventy-five. There we go. I just like this in. I'm seeing fifty percent up there. I like those odds. So I like even though you're not done there, I see a fifty percent. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm taking that one. <laughs> I think it's now zero uh, because we'll be, I didn't even finish this. But uh, between one seventy and one seventy five, you know, um, let's see if you go up to one eight. Let's let's say one eighty. I still don't think that'd be very good. But uh, still you know, not this, nothing. Yeah, he he was invited to the. We have one cornerback that was invited to the combine, but um, the your odds of being drafted is, is zero. Okay, yeah. well. I, I don't like that answer. So I, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm yeah, kidding. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty cool though. Yeah, kidding aside though, that is, that is pretty cool. Um, thankfully I didn't invest a lot of time or energy trying to get drafted. Cause I probably, wouldn't, <laughs> even, if I, even if I wasn't 50 years old or almost 50, uh, that wouldn't have happened. But, um, so here's the, here's a really interesting question though. I want to uh, get to, and I, I actually, I don't think I would have thought of this question. So it's a great one. This is from Ryan on LinkedIn. Ryan asked, it seems that in media and day-to-day discussions, there's been a negative connotation around the words data and personal information the last couple of years. It's had a negative impact on marketing, advertising, losing ability to track data. Let me finish the question here. Um, Hold on. I just lost it. The last couple of years, it has had so that uh, the negative connotation around data and personal information has had a negative impact on marketing, advertising, losing ability to track data conversions. Does that have any impact in government or business outside the marketing realm? So in other words, is it harder to get data now than it used to be with some of these data privacy laws like GDR or GRDP and um, Europe and other you know privacy laws that are being passed throughout the world? Yeah, that's a good question. I have seen an explosion in like health, in like, you know, in like personnel and HR analytics. Um, I haven't really had to dive into any of that. Uh, my, a lot of mine is more operational based. So uh, I, I, I deal with things that are, I mean, that might be sensitive, like, you know, like how much, how many contracts a company has, you know, that's something that is like sensitive um, company data. But, um, you know, I don't really get into a lot of the um, like personal, like like personal data. Uh, I would imagine that there are, that, that you know, that is, a, that is an issue and, and that there are some obviously provisions that have been put in place to make sure that people's sensitive data is, isn't getting out. Um, but yeah, I, I haven't seen that. And, and generally, I think the U.S. government does a pretty good job of sort of um, keeping your personal data away from. So there's a whole set of like rules and uh, procedures around that, and probably more so than I've seen in, in, in private sector. Yeah, I can see that being a 
big deal and sort of business B2C or business to consumer sorts of processes or data sets or uh, e-commerce, I would imagine that's where you're probably going to see more limitations or more challenge versus a B2C or uh, I'm sorry, a B2B uh, organization that sells to other companies or -hmm. other businesses or a government entity or public sector organization where, you know, the, the personal data isn't as important or relevant to potentially as important or relevant. Yeah. Um, that's pretty interesting. Here's a, here's a question from uh, a Jordy on LinkedIn. And again, uh, more of the questions are coming back to sports, which uh, I had a feeling might happen, uh, which is great. Um, so, so uh, Jordy says wins above re- replacement. The acronym is W A R is a newer baseball stat that measures a player's value in all facets of the game by deciphering how many more wins he's worth than a replacement level player at his same position. Um, do you foresee the style of stat becoming a measurement in the business world related to hiring and promoting employees? And maybe I'll just, maybe I'll broaden that a little bit and say, do you, do you see this being used in the world of HR? And it, this, this is a, you know, this, this sort of bumps up on a whole set of ethical and legal issues around potential, you know, discrimination, <laughs> and things yeah. like that. You know, if you use too much data, you could be, you know, have some issues with discrimination potentially, but what, what do you see? Do you see this data and this sort of mindset that you're talking about? Could that be used in human capital and HR sorts of processes? I'm, I'm, I'm sure it is in, in, in many cases. You know, um, I can tell you right now in the NFL, it is actively practiced in, in terms of age discrimination. Um, like all the data shows that, uh, for example, in, in the in the, this is the NFL running backs, which is a position that is you take the ball and, and, and a starting running back carries the ball about you know, anywhere from 15 to 25 times a game being hit by the largest of the largest men in the world uh and those guys just don't last very long in fact all the stats show that a running back is most productive in year one and then mm. they start becoming um they start declining in productivity you know by the time you get to 30 if you get to 30 you're, you're pretty much useless uh, because uh, you may and i hate to sound so so mean about it but like You've taken so much punishment that you, you just don't have the ability to produce him. Like, I mean, I'll, so I mentioned before, I'm, I'm a big Dallas Cowboys fan. We had Ezekiel Elliott, who was one of the best running backs in the in the National Football League. But last year, he was a shadow of his former self. And then he just got released this year. And he's like 27, 28. So, um, you know, <laughs> it is unfortunately very um, – it is practiced in the NFL. That's why they have this draft. You know, they, every year they they have this draft to get in new players, and and you know they look at their current roster and say, could this player that I have be better than what's on my current roster? That's essentially what they're doing each time. And yeah. and if he's better, then I could get arguably more wins. So it, it is it is being practiced in, in many regards. In, in terms of the business world, I mean, people have to sort of make that decision, and I think it is. But but maybe no one says it um, in the most uh, vivid terms, you know. It's <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you make me feel better now because now I can just say the only reason I didn't get drafted is because they're discriminating against me because I'm over forty. So <laughs> <Yeah>. exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, that's that's super interesting. Um, what? Uh, Oh, one thing I want to make sure I get to that um, I think it, there might've been a question that popped up around this too. Uh, I think earlier on there was a, a question related to AI, but I'll maybe more specifically ask the question around ChatGPT. But um, I think this is something you've been uh, commenting on, on on TikTok lately, but how does ChatGPT impact, or, or maybe AI in general, how does ChatGPT slash AI 
affect the field of BI and analytics, or how do you see it or predict that it will affect the field of BI and analytics in the future? Good, good, good question. So I, I wrote a piece about this and I posted on LinkedIn. I posted in some of um, the groups that I'm in. Um, I think uh, the way I see ChatGPT, it's, it's, first of all, it's an excellent tool that I leverage, uh, but I leverage it in more in, so every job has some, um, you know, administrative parts you have to do. You have to write a report. You have to sort of describe something. Um, what I do in, in, in what I've used ChatGPT for is I, I just say, okay, I executed this and I describe a vague practice, um, something I did, like, could you um, highlight to me the steps that were, that were taken? What, what steps would have been most, um, I asked ChatGPT, what steps did I take to, to undertake this process? And then it gave me a very detailed and I would say 85% accurate description of all the steps that I did to um, create this process. So in, in my case, what I did was I, I connected, um, Power BI to a to a to a certain dashboard, and and I and I wanted to uh, to, to a certain data warehouse, and I wanted to stress to some of my clients. I also want to create a process flow. I don't want to stress my clients, you know, the importance of the stability of the data source. And I and I asked ChatGPT that question. Okay, I connected Power BI to a data warehouse. How do I? What are the process flows for ensuring the stability of the data source? And it gave me a very list, very good list of what I did. Obviously, I had to go in and edit it and um, and customize it to my to my specific needs. But it was very good. It was a very good report. Um, one of the things that I see ChatGPT doing, and it's sort of a, a quandary here, is that same report is something that I would have probably assigned to a junior resource before. Mm. Um, you know, hey, you know, just write the report on the steps that we did, and and you know, I would have worked with him, him or her, and we would have talked about it, and then you know, he would have, and we would have out of corrected some things, you know, and that process could have taken I don't know, two days to a week, you know, like of going back and forth working with this junior resource in addition to my other job. When I worked with ChatGPT, that took fifteen minutes. Fifteen minutes. It was about two minutes of me coming up with a question. ChatGPT giving me the answers, me copying and pasting, and then me reformatting it. Okay, maybe I'll say 30 minutes. You know, me, me reformatting it and, and adding very specific things um, about my client's environment. And, and that was it. You know, so I think it really will have an impact on, on the career, on, on, the, on the data analytics field. But this is it's gonna have the same impact I think it's gonna have on many different fields, which is that a lot of the sort of admin work that you would have assigned to a junior resource that would have helped them learn how to do the job is um, it might it take some of those opportunities away. So there's going to have there's going to have to be other ways of training people how to uh, how to do the job. You know, maybe schools are going to have to change to be to make people very job ready because ChatGPT and those tools they're only as good as the prompts that are asked. And if yeah. you don't know, and you don't know the prompts, yeah, I, I, and you know the the prompts asked because you know the job. So, but if you don't know the job, ChatGPT, I think, is probably useless to you. It doesn't help you in any way because you, you don't know what what questions to ask. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, it almost seems like uh, lower level or entry level white collar jobs are the ones that are most at risk. I mean, blue collar jobs may not be as impacted, and maybe you know, more experienced senior people aren't as affected, although you've just given an example of how your world has been affected, maybe not necessarily negatively. It, it, that's probably a positive way that you your job has been impacted. And certainly your your clients are saving money, I imagine now, because they're not having to pay 
you know, they're not having to wait two weeks and pay for a junior analyst to do something that you can do in 15 or 30 minutes yourself. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so I guess just to um, maybe tie this all together and put a bow on this whole thread and this whole conversation, um, we've covered a lot of ground, you know, between sports data and analytics and how that applies or that mindset can be applied to um, the business and, and uh, private and public sector worlds. Um, but what advice would you give to an organization that's just starting on their BI and analytics journey? Or maybe they, they know they're, they're not taking full advantage of the data they have. They don't have the right tools necessarily, or they just haven't been a, a data-centric or a analytics-centric focused organization. What advice would you give to that sort of team or organization that's trying to get started on that journey? Do it now. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, gone are the days. Data analytics is no longer a, a luxury. Um, it, it is, it's now must be a core piece of all of the organizations, of your um, uh, core functions. If the U.S. government is doing it, trust me, that, that's probably a good thing to, to follow um, because they, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's a huge competitive advantage or, or disadvantage if, you know, if with depending on whether or not you're doing it. Um, if you really have a good idea of what um, are some of the drivers of your business, um, then, then you have a better idea of like you know how, how to how to make how to make strategic decisions you know um i, I if you have a i'm going to give an example like a, if you have a delivery plan like you know you, you can see like sometimes you can see um and amazon you know, depend on how much criticism you give it does this at a very excellent level uh you know seeing how much productivity you're getting out of each person you know so is is the is uh, or is, is this person giving you x amount of input and what can we do to adjust that you know I'm not trying to get into the ethical issues about that, yeah. but but the, but it, it is no longer a luxury, and and you have to um, do it. I mean, I think gone are the days of having some expert. I think you're going to see less and less of these, like you know, I call them these like data gurus, information gurus in, in organizations. They ask them, you know, why is Willie? Hey, what what's going on here? You know, can, can you fix our problems? Those days are gone. Like you have to have the data now, and and you can you rely on the data to make better decisions. Right. It's well said, and I, you have a great point too. That if the government and public sector organizations are finding ways to make better use of data, that's that should be a good impetus or a good burning platform for why you, especially if you're in the private sector, why you should be you know making better use of the data you do have. Yeah, sure. All right, thank you, Anthony. Great conversation. Very interesting. I love the conversation and the connection between sports analytics and how some of that mindset and that analytical thinking can apply to to the world of business as well we've got a lot more to cover and unpack from that conversation but first we're going to take a quick break you're listening to transformation ground control if you are aiming for transformation success turn to third stage consulting group third stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies define their roadmaps and manage their transformations with offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, 
Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 120. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So Kyler, we just had Anthony on the show talking about BI and analytics, sports, business, all kinds of stuff we covered. We covered a lot of ground. What were some of your thoughts on the conversation? Well, you guys did cover a lot of ground, um, and I honestly had no idea that was going to be about sports statistics and learn so much about what that means um, during that that conversation. So it was fascinating, um, most definitely to see. I, I mean, I'm very sorry for you that you will not be a consideration likely in the NFL draft, but <laughs> well, at, I'm, um, that, that just means it hasn't happened yet. There's anomalies yeah. every data set. Absolutely. I'm sure someday there'll be a 49 year old that's five foot nine that will get drafted and that first person may be me. You never know. Yeah. And in data intelligence speak, I actually put in our comments, um, Tyree kill would kind of be that outlier, right? He's, he's, uh, I think he's five ten, Um, and he is obviously one of the fastest. He just won, you know, a U.S. track sprint to the the 200 as an NFL player probably has 50 pounds on all of the other sprinters in there. So there is outliers. So, you know, ne- never, never you're, stop trying to achieve your goal. There. You're saying there's a chance. That's what yeah. I'm hearing. Right. Absolutely. Um, I think it was interesting. One of the things I wanted to kind of bring up um, to you in, in the audience here after post conversation is his kind of thought about those emerging technologies like chat GPT or um, machine learning, predictive analytics and how that will really replace kind of the quote unquote admin work and wanted to kind of dig into that organizational design or that structure. If you are kind of seeing those technologies in a healthy way, create those efficiencies. And it's kind of ties back to what we talked about a little bit earlier on the episode, but creating the opportunity for those roles to grow while having that strategic thinking of how you're going to shift through those efficiencies. So I wondered if you could give us maybe some pointers or your feedback on how, if you're starting to see your data strategy go into, wow, we're creating lots of efficiencies through our technology and reporting, what should we do now with additional resources or how can we take that next step into leveraging and garnering additional business intelligence? Yeah, that's a great Great question. I mean, I, I think there's a lot that most organizations can do to improve their data. So there's a couple pieces. One is the the data itself that you've presumably been accumulating as an organization for years, if not decades. And so over time, that data ultimately inevitably becomes corrupt. It becomes dirty. It's inaccurate. You've got duplicates that you know are, make it harder to report and, and make meaning of. So just simply cleaning the data can be a pretty monumental exercise. But beyond that, there's also more strategic and more proactive processes and uses of resources on the data side of things that will help prevent those problems in the future. And a couple examples would be um, establishing a data governance process and actually managing data and having a data management uh, governance and process in place to where... um, you establish more clarity and more structure around who and how people can change data within your system. So um, that's that's uh, you know that's just a couple ideas on how you can redeploy those resources and redeploy that focus in a way that uh, allows you to really maximize the value. Because I think I don't know when this will happen, but I have a feeling someday, uh, not too in the not too distant future, on balance sheets, you know, accounting rules are going to actually show 
um, the value of data. And I, I suppose it, it might already be showing up in some balance sheets and financial results in uh, in organizations that uh, have it within intellectual property. You know, the you know, the IP uh, line item on a balance sheet. You know, can I, I think that's you're going to start seeing more data, or you should start to see more data um, valuations of that value because I think it's such an important asset to organizations and an important currency that will become more and more important as time goes on. Yeah. And speaking of currency and overall value, um, I think uh, just a little plug for Jordy there with that great question. I think he should be, um, you know, have that metric of achievement for even asking such a great question. And there's two different fields. I kind of want to talk about that because I, I totally understand the sports analytic piece of it is so interesting. And that's why they changed the game of baseball in order to attract more younger viewers because their data was showing them like, hey, this is the the viewer base is not that young focus that likes that reactive nature. And it's funny that he mentioned that because recently I've gone down a rabbit hole of looking at analytics in baseball. And my husband, Adam, who's on the show a lot, is like, what are you doing? You don't even like baseball. And I'm like, but this is fascinating. They're changing the entire game. And then there's all this like content of coaches yelling at each other, like all of these different things that are now like have upped the drama factor because of these new an- analytics of scoring, game time, all different things. So it's so interesting that he asked that. But it is a great question to bring up of like, how do you measure employees and when is data too much data when it comes to looking at an employee that might not perform in the same way as another one quantitatively but qualitatively they bring a lot of other human aspects to the organization um, so what would be your your thoughts on that it's a tough question it's a good one it's a, it's a tough question um, and I asked Anthony that too because yeah. I was genuinely curious because I didn't have a good answer for it and uh, I don't think he did either. I don't know that it's necessarily his area of expertise on the HR and human capital talent management side of things. Um, I, what I would say to that is I think that there probably is a lot of untapped potential there. We just haven't figured out how to do it yet as, as you know, a human race or as, as, an organiza- as organizations throughout the world. And I think there's also, you know, we talked a little bit about privacy mm-hmm. um, and discrimination. Those are two things that sort of provide some headwinds or some roadblocks, barriers to fully maximizing data in the way that you're talking about. Um, although I suppose if you're already employed by an organization, uh, it's it's less of a, a threat or a risk. But I don't know. I, I think that would be a good uh, question or a, a good reason to have, um, mm-hmm. what's his name? John Heiliger. Yeah. Um, John Heiliger. Yeah, I was, was thinking the same thing. Yeah. He's, he was yeah. on the show last year. I don't remember what episode it is. If you go search uh, the word workforce analytics, transformation ground control on um, Google, if you just Google that, you'll find either a video or the, the audio stream of that interview. And he is a workforce analytics person. He's like the VP now. He, at the time, I think he was a director. Now he's a VP of, of workforce analytics um, at um, Martin, uh, not Lockheed, Martin, Lockheed, Lockheed Martin. Martin. Thank yeah. you. I was going to say Martin Marietta. That's really going to age myself. To, the fact that I know that they used to be What's that? Martin. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> right. Yeah, it was, it was back in the days of MySpace and whatnot. That's when uh, they were around. But uh, anyway, so he'd be a good one to have on the show. I don't have a good answer for you, to be honest. Um, I have some speculation, but that's not super helpful at this point. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, interesting to hear from the audience on that note too, um, because I think there'll be some great content that we can pull for future episodes around feedback or questions um, specifically from that great insight. So thank you to you and Anthony for all of that. As I I think I say this every time, but I just love them every time. I think it's a good, you know, follow up to, you know, the human side of business intelligence too, of maybe bringing in more of a panel discussion with him and as a technical resource, maybe an HR professional too, that can kind of help us through that, which we had um, last week's episode. So episode 119, we had a lot of talk about kind of training in HR um, as well and what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we'll see if we can get John back on the show to talk about that, that stuff. Cause I think that'd be super interesting, um, especially in the context of that conversation with, with Anthony. Mm-hmm. Well, good. Well, uh, good stuff there. We're going to shift gears a bit and uh, we'll still stay analytical. I'd say we'll still stay, we'll still stay quantitative and uh, we'll certainly be focused on business processes because we're going to talk about business process mining. And uh, this is a super interesting uh, interview that I did. Was it on this podcast that I originally did or was it Yes, it was, it was originally, it was in the very early days. Um, so please forgive the audio quality. We we weren't quite as sophisticated as we are today. I don't know that we're that sophisticated, but um, yeah, so that, that conversation happened in 2021. Yeah. I mean, yeah, back in 2021, you know, we had like five listeners a week and now we've got, you know, a dozen, maybe 20. I yeah. don't know. And there were lots, lots of followers now compared to what we, what we had back then. <laughs> Just kidding. But um, it was, in all seriousness, though, it was in the early days when we're still trying to figure out this podcast and I didn't have any real equipment to use. I was just doing it off my laptop or whatever. But um, anyway, but it doesn't change the fact that the conversation itself is awesome and, and our guest is awesome. Uh, his name is Wayne Holtham, VP of our Australia and Asia Pacific office uh, for Third Stage Consulting. He's going to be on the show talking about business process mining. So we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Just tell me what you've got. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 120. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyla Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on audio podcast platforms throughout the world, as well as social media as well. So I'm excited for our next guest. We're actually going to play you a clip from a podcast interview that we did a couple years ago, um, early on in the days of uh, Transformation Ground Control, which seems like forever ago, but it was only about two years ago. Uh, that we started the podcast in uh, right around then uh, in those early episodes, we had a guest, uh, Wayne Holtham, who's been on many times since then. But this discussion in particular is very good because it's about business process mining. And it's still something I think is very cool. It's not talked about a lot. You know, it gets overshadowed by ChatGPT and analytics and a lot of the stuff we talk about on the show. 
the business process mining is a really cool technology. I, I love it. It's, it's one of my favorites as far as what I think it can do to help an organization. So we're going to dive into what it is, how it can be used, uh, get into some case studies. I believe we talk about some case studies in this clip as well. So let's go ahead and roll the clip and we'll come back and chat about it uh, when we're done. So here's Wayne Holtham in my discussion with him talking about business process mining and digital transformation. Why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself before we, before we jump in? Uh, I've been around the, I suppose, digital transformation space for probably last, or well, as you can see, 20, 30 years sort of thing. Uh, it's about change and about getting people to be able to adopt process and to do things um, as, in a consistent way. So um, so that's important to me, and it's one of the, probably the areas I find a real lot of benefit. Yeah, absolutely. So... And that's the topic at hand today is, is business process mining. Maybe just to start then, um, help us understand what exactly what exactly is business process mining? Well, it's, it's probably the 21st century's way to understand how well we do process. So many times we'll ask people and people will go, we do it this way. And uh, we assume that they're right, but we don't ask everybody. And so the value of process mining allows us to be able to sort of look into what actually happens and how many different ways it happens. And so um, that, that's the diff diff different paradigm, I suppose. So you're able to be able to um, look deeply into process and then work out what you need to do to get consistency or improve. Yeah. Okay. So, so maybe let's build on that a little bit. Is it, um, is it a is, is business process mining a framework? Is it a tool? Is it a manual process where you you analyze different processes? Maybe help us understand just at, at the most fundamental level what exactly is it, or how do how do you how do you go about that at, at a high level? Well, there's there's tools there that allow you to tap into the data and have a look at it. I suppose third stage is um, proposed and perfected a framework that allows you to be able to take that information, that intelligence you have and then work through what do we have? How do we solve it? What does good look like? How do we measure it? Okay. And so um, what What about um, when we think about business process improvement, you know, that's that's a discipline that's been around for a long time. And you've had disciplines like uh, Lean Six Sigma that have focused on measuring processes and continuous improvement and can you continuously optimizing business processes and operations. How, how is business process mining different from those other sort of business process methodologies like process improvement, process management, Six Sigma, that sort of stuff? Well, previously, you never had the ability to see what was actually happening. It's like the crystal ball. So you always worked on processes based on how people told you they were doing it. Whereas today, you can actually say, here is actually how you're doing it. And I can see how many other gaps are in our processes. Yeah. And the one thing that's important is it's not only how the process is done, it's the things that stop the process from being done. So many times we find we build workarounds and do those sort of things, and that leads to that process creep or inconsistency. Whereas this allows you to point those out and you can actually rectify those. So it could be master data, it could be um, just different workflows, it's, it's a number of different areas. Yeah. Okay. And is it typically something that you would do um, within a certain functional area or department or a certain system 
or is it meant to be more of an end-to-end uh, business process flow or analysis of what's actually happening with your end-to-end processes or, or is it mixable? It, it's, it's largely end-to-end and I think that's the real value to it. Many organizations get caught into the silo-based processes or business unit style process. Whereas if you actually look at it end-to-end, that's where you get the value drivers and you can measure performance. And uh, that's where value comes uh, for the business when you're actually um, improving and getting getting consistency, yeah. Okay. And does that also apply, does that end-to-end mindset with process mining, does that also apply to multiple systems? So if I have multiple ERP systems or I have a, a financial and accounting system and a separate CRM and a separate manufacturing can I do process mining across systems or do I, do I need to, am I limited by what systems I might already have in place? Now the tools today are actually very advanced. So you could have um, a whole landscape uh, of tools. It could be a CRM, could be a HCM, a best of breed. And you can actually pick the process and then also identify where they interact with each of those um, platforms. So, um, so really, really deep into the end-to-end process piece, no matter what technology you've bolted together or got architecture that supports that. Okay. So it can really cut across any system or systems that are touching the process. You would be able to sort of capture and analyze what's actually happening. With exactly those. right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so what, I guess if you, if you do this uh, process mining process, maybe maybe help us understand, let's, let's just say I'm, I'm just starting the process mining um, process, not to be redundant with that word process. I feel like I'm going to keep doing that <laughs> through this discussion. Um, but the, when we're going through that process, I'm just getting started on it uh, for my organization end to end process. What do I do? Like, what does it look like in terms of, uh, you know, how do I use the software or how does it, how does it collect data to, to help me see the visibility into what's actually happening with my processes? Well, the software has a number of pre-built connectors. And so those connectors will um, tap into the database and pick up the, uh, I suppose, the tables in the background that house the transactional data. And so you extract that, and then the process mining tool does the evaluation, and, uh, and that's where you start to get the depth of knowledge that you're looking for, yeah. And many times you start with one process. Um, the best is probably a value driver process so one that, you know, if it's not done well, it's costing money, costing time, those sorts of things. And so that's probably where the best part is to start out. Then you start seeing the value and you can actually, by carrying out those improvements, you're actually paying yourself back for the cost of actually doing the work. Yeah. Yeah. Just in the, the amount of inefficiency and broken processes you've identified using those t- those tools. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Okay. So if I'm an end user, I'm on the front line and I'm, a, I'm actually the one, one of the people executing these business processes that we're, we're mining. Um, do I know that that process mining is a tool is there or am I just sort of business as usual? And in the background, it's, it's sort of capturing how data is flowing to me onto the next person and on, onto the next person after that. It's in the background. You don't even see it's, it's happening. Um, it does allow you if you take the advanced process mining, where it can actually advise you as a user, if you're not doing the process right, it will give you the ways that the process should be done, or it will provide you options to be able to, um, you know, follow up on 
things that you need to do. So if your account's payable, account's receivable, and um, you've got somebody who's overdue or um, those sorts of things, you can actually get a, a warning and alert and say, you need to follow this up and this person's overdue or, or there's a bonus about to be paid. So you need to you know, um, process that vendor as it is sort of thing. So um, it's, it's quite powerful in the advanced part, but we're talking early about the evaluation piece. Yeah. Right, right. Okay, so what when I use this process mining tool or a process mining tool to analyze my end to end processes, um, it's in the background. People are executing their processes as they would day to day. It's capturing data behind the scenes in the tables to, to help us analyze and understand where the uh, you know what the speed or velocity of process flow is and where the bottlenecks are, where the breakdowns are. Um, what what sort of dashboard or end result do I get out of this the system out of the process mining tool? to be able to see what's happening? I mean, what does it look like? Or how would you explain that to someone who's never seen sort of what that would look like on the, the business process mining tool itself? Well, you start off with a linear process, end-to-end -end process. So if you took a procurement, you'd have a purchase rec, purchase order, you know, you'd receive an invoice, uh, goods receipt, and you'd, you'd see the linear process. And when you actually start evaluating, you start to see where the differences are. So you might get to the point where um, you've, you're starting a process down an invoice receipt. And so that's a that's a, a warning sign as such because you're actually purchasing without a purchase order. Mm. You don't know what your spend's gonna be, you know, and it's maverick buying as such. And so that allows people to be able to go, well, why is our process not right? You might find the other area is where we're changing prices. So we've got a purchase order, we may have an agreed price and we send it to the vendor and they come back and say the price needs to change. And that could be a master data issue or it could be a vendor is not following the price catalog that they have. So you can see you fix lots of different areas as against just the standard process. Yeah. Mm. So it's sort of back to that question about how it ties into business process improvement methodologies. So it gives you the the analytics or, or the data or the knowledge or insights to be able to see that there's a problem there in that process where, um, you know, with that purchasing process you described or the PO process you described, and therefore I can now go to some root cause analysis to figure out why, you know, why are people doing it that way? Is that a training issue? Is it a system issue or whatever? Exactly right. And it allows you to drill down to every variant that you have uh, across that whole end-to-end -end process. So um, there could be 100, 200 different variants of the ways people follow through in that process. Okay. Interesting. So a company with like 10,000 employees, let's just say, you could have theoretically 10,000 or maybe even more different processes or different ways that people are doing different jobs within the same, within the same functions. Oh, exactly right. And the other benefit is that if you've got different divisions, you can actually benchmark against the divisions. And so you can see where the high performers are and mm. the ones that are actually following a process and others that are having issues or inconsistency in their process. And so you can start to improve against each other. Mm, it's really powerful. Is the reporting an analytical uh, tool set as far as just slicing and dicing what you see or what you're analyzing from the process mining tools? Is it pretty powerful or does it require a fair amount of human intervention and analysis to really make sense of all the data you're getting out of the process mining tool. No, it's very powerful. And you get, you get a number of different views. So you can see 
how close to automated process you could be. Um, you, you can still see down to which vendor, which user, uh, which, um, which actually invoice, right down to the bottom level to be able to see where there's gaps or inconsistencies. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. Um, and then do you have um, maybe a, one or two examples of case, like a case study of where you've seen this process mining uh, tool used and sort of what, you know, what you measured, what came out of it, what you found, you know, what you discovered as a result. Do you, do you, could you share an example of that with us? Yeah, there's, there's one that um, recently uh, us were involved in, and that was um, following up after an S4 ha deployment had failed. And so um, they were looking at a number of different instances or facilities that they had. And uh, they were trying to identify why they couldn't get consistent process. So they put in the process mining tool, looked at each of the instances and realized that all 17 instances were actually doing the process a different way. Even though S4 had a centralized single process that they had rolled out. And so from there, you could actually look back and improve the process that they're actually uh, using and start to align users to, to the process. And I think that's the key thing was that users could actually see the value of doing the process in a consistent way. And so um, that, that's the real benefit that this particular case study came with. Um, and following on now, they've actually built some business rules into the process mining and that allows them to be able to maintain consistency across all 17 of those instances. So, um, hmm. so that's, that's the, probably the flow on effect and you can continually then measure how well your performances are going across all of your processes. So um, it's not a sort of just a, let's look at it at the beginning. It's something that you can use and monitor all the way through. Really interesting. So it, it's not necessarily just as part of a uh, of an initial implementation, right? You said in this case it was a it was a S four HANA failure, and they had seventeen instances, lots of different ways of doing things. But could you also just use it if I've already got I'm happy, fairly happy with my systems, or I'm not really thinking about necessarily replacing all my systems, but I just want to get more out of them? Can I use it in that context too, or is it meant for more of a new system deployment? Deployment? No, definitely, and I think that with the pressure of people going, let's go to a new system. One of the first steps they should look at is how well do we do our processes with our old system? Because when I move to the new system, I wanna have pretty consistent process. So I, what I build in the technology platform is closer to what we want is a smooth, simplified process. Whereas if we don't do that at the beginning, then the change effort is big, adoption is harder, and, um, you know, it just makes it much harder to actually roll out a total deployment program. Right. Yeah. Makes, makes total sense. Um, and, uh, I just want to acknowledge there are a lot of questions coming in on LinkedIn. I just saw someone commented, I think Eric's ignoring us. So I just want you to know if you're on LinkedIn, we'll get to your questions in just a moment. Um, and there's, there's actually a ton of them there. Um, but let me get some of the basic questions out of the way here and then we'll, we'll dive into the, the real questions that the, that the audience has here. Um, so um, you talked a little bit about the benefits of process mining. Maybe we'll just come back to that real quickly. You said that, you know, usually you can justify any sort of time and cost investment in process mining via 
the improvements and the um, the potential improvements you can make as a result. Is that a fair summary? It is, um, because many times the things that you uncover are very costly in loss of value in your organization. And so just by rectifying those and knowing where you actually, the problem is, so you focus right in on it, it's not a very costly exercise to actually overcome those, but the return is quite, quite high. Right. Okay, we're here playing a clip of Wayne Holtham and I talking about business process mining in process improvement and digital transformation. We've got a lot more to cover. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. When fears are big, that should be small. Who can tell what magic spells we'll be doing? Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 120. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday. We're in the midst of a conversation here with Wayne Holtham talking about business process mining. So let's jump back into the clip. What's super interesting too, is as you're describing this whole uh, process mining tool and the approach and the, the methodology, and even in the case study you described, it's it's a fascinating way to augment that traditional way of, you know, getting in a conference room and sort of mapping out our processes end to end and, and really giving you some quantitative real data that's objective. It's not it's not infused with my opinion or internal politics or the fear of offending someone or just a you know, misunderstanding of what's actually happening in reality. It's, it's, it's very fact and data based. It sounds like compared to it is. And it's, it's funny that you say that because we're working with a client at the moment and uh, we're mapping out all of the workshops that we're actually going to use in the evaluation process. And they're saying, but they're very short workshops. There's no day workshops uh, and we've got everybody involved and we're putting post-it notes on the wall. It's, it's very factual in what you're doing. And it's like an evolution process to get people understanding what's happening and then what should we do about it? Because the thinking is different then. And so the change process is different because you're working with real life as against assumption or people's opinion or all those sorts of things. So it's, um, yeah. it's, it's a whole different framework of getting the improvement. Yeah. Just think of all the times that you, myself, anyone else on the third stage team or any consultant out there has been in a conference room, and just talking about processes and you get these perceptions like, oh yeah, we have a very common process for this or that, or, or they say, oh yeah, that's a broken process, or we've got, we don't have a consistent way of doing things. That's still very subjective and qualitative, but if you had actual data to back that or refute it, you could say, well, actually here's what's really happening. And this isn't, again, it's not an opinion, it's fact of what's actually happening. So it, I imagine it's very eye-opening to a lot of organizations. That and see- it is, and, and it stops that, you know, that whole thing of, the we don't agree with that or that's not right here it is it's quite clear yeah we could maybe disagree or 
analyze what the cause is, you know, why is it showing that? But, but it's hard to refute the data that actually comes out of that because it, yeah. it is reality. And, so, and some people find it refreshing because they've been stuck with processes that can't work properly because maybe master data isn't right or no one set up the vendor prior or, or, you know, there's a whole range of things that cause the issues and they've had to work with that before and be forced to actually have a simple process. But those workarounds have, have been what they need to actually even get the process out, get it working. So, Right. Very interesting. Um, and then uh, maybe I'll ask this one uh, one more question I've got, and then I'm going to shift gears. We've got questions coming in from multiple places here. I'm getting, We're getting bombarded, and I don't want people to abandon the uh, live stream because I'm not getting to their questions. But uh, <laughs> one last thing I'll ask just from my perspective is when you think about um, – process mining and organizational change management and, and bear with me because I, I know you know and the audience may not though but I cannot for the life of me get through a discussion without somehow tracing it back to change management so I'm going to do it again here um, how does how does process mining uh, or how does process mining potentially help from a change management perspective and if so how well if people can understand the why and I often see this in change management is the resistance is because people don't understand why they're doing or what they need to do. And so if you understand the why, the change effort becomes uh, more of a, we are happy to make this change. And so it's almost like a, um, I call it a push, uh, you know, a, we're pushing to get these process improvements. Whereas you as the change person aren't pushing them, they're pulling you along. So um, it, it, that's the difference with the change piece. And you can see um, small pieces of, uh, change improvement, which ends up to be big change overall. So um, you can quantify your change value. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it creates a, a clear story and a clear burning platform for change. You know, you can point specifically to real issues and real problems that, that are being addressed as a result of the. Of That's whatever. right. And, and not normally where we're looking at everything, you know, change program and digital transformation is quite large. You can actually pull bits off, rectify that, and you get incremental benefit as you go. So, mm -hmm. um, so it's more manageable. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, great. Well, let me let me shift gears here and uh, get to some of the the audience questions, and I've I've got some more we'll get to as well um, later on. But uh, first of all, we've got a, a very diverse audience here today. We've got people from uh, just a few examples: San Francisco, Ukraine, Pakistan, India, uh, Norway. South Africa, um, Venezuela, so a lot of different places. Spain, someone on Crowdcast uh, is on Spain. One of our frequent uh, attendees is, is from there. In fact, his comment is, an old Spanish dog is back to learn new tricks. So uh, <laughs> I, I hope we're teaching him some new tricks here uh, in this discussion. Um, so first question from uh, Rahendra on uh, LinkedIn asked the question of, could you name some of the process mining tools that are out there? Just some examples of some of the, the leading tools. There's uh, two. One is called Salonis, which is probably the leading tool. And the second one is one that was recently purchased by SAP, and that's called Signavio. Um, and both of them are fundamentally similar. Uh, Salonis is probably the leader in the market and probably has the biggest market share. Yeah. Okay. Now, just as a follow-up question to that one, uh, to Rahanja's question, are these tools, you mentioned SAP has acquired Signavio. If I'm using Signavio or any other 
process mining tool, whether it's Alonis or anything else. Um, is it technology agnostic? Can I use it with any other tool? Or if I if I'm using Signavio, is that only going to work with SAP because SAP owns it? No, it's, uh, they are technology agnostic. Um, SAP bought it because of I think many of the challenges of S4 and realizing there's lots of process change, and so they're probably trying to uh, leverage that as part of their um, rollout program or or future state for S4 deployments. Right. And just to add to the Salonis comment, that that's a tool that we use, and you, you've helped us sort of forge that relationship and that use of that tool in our consulting methodology at Third Stage Consulting, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. We're working with clients now, so um, and getting some really great results. Yeah, yeah. that's very cool. I, I'll be honest, I didn't know what process mining was until I, you know, started talking to you about it um, probably a year ago, or whatever it was. So it's and there's two, there's two parts that I guess is the fact there's the tool. There's also what you do with that tool. And many and in the early days, organizations would get it. The IT people would maybe plug it in. And because you didn't have that end-to-end view, it didn't really go anywhere. And so applying a framework where you actually have end-to-end view focus and an improvement and change piece in there, that's where your value comes from. Right, right. Okay. Um... I'll try to take a stab at uh, this question here. This is from Ostientin. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing it. It's on uh, LinkedIn. Um, And the question is, I guess process mining allows one to understand how processes are reflected in the systems so you can't mine off line processes. Is that true? Or does that question make sense to you? I'm not sure that I I, I personally don't understand that question. Maybe you do. I I think he's probably talking about uh, organizations that work a lot off system and so people say well how can you process mine if that's the case but what you pick up is you always have to have a record a system of record and so when you're going in and out of the system you start to see the uh, time delays um, and and you can piece together where the problems are um, many times people will snap it out the spreadsheet and then uh, you know do some process analyses and then put a number back in the ERP. And the problem with that is, is that number real, or are we letting the ERP do what it's meant to do? You know, it's it's meant to be a finance tool, it's meant to be a, you know, a, a asset management tool, it's meant to be something uh, that allows those processes and financial records to be kept as a source of truth. And when we don't do that, the value of ERP is diminished. And so um, you can pick that up quite quickly. Interesting. So it's so maybe to paraphrase or make sure we're addressing the the question or the point here. So if I'm a if I'm an end user and you, we've got a process mining tool running in the background, I'm in SAP or Oracle or whatever my ERP system is. I pull some data out of it. I go to my spreadsheet. I do whatever I'm going to do, and then I come back and enter some data as a result of my analysis or manipulation in a spreadsheet. The process mining tool isn't going to know what I did in the spreadsheet outside the system, but it's going to see that there was a lag there. And then I would yes. know to drill into that so I could drill in and say, okay, why is there such a gap here? And then I would analyze that, get to the root cause and find that, oh, it's because people are going and doing stuff in spreadsheets or manipulating the data or going to other third-party sources to get the data they need. Is that sort of- That's what exactly you're... it. Yeah, okay. that's what you find. Yep. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, another question, this is a question from uh, Robert uh, Speller on LinkedIn. He says, does this work like a GUI between apps? 
Interesting. Um, between modules, uh, it, it works. Yeah, so you can actually pick up the tables in the background that might be a finance, uh, you might have some asset management, you might have those sort of things. So you can actually link those tables together to drive your end-to-end -end process. So it sits across apps and it works off the application layer. Okay, great. Um, there's a really good question here from Rahendra again on LinkedIn. I'm gonna come back to that in a second because it's a, it's a pretty meaty question in there because there's someone that's waiting or that asked a question a while back here on Crowdcast. Um, and this question is from uh, Karen on Crowdcast, and she says, how can users be doing something 17 different ways in a newly installed S4 HANA system? Which actually I was wondering that same thing. Um, <laughs> can you give some examples of, you know, how that's possible? Well, it's, it's um, you know, how they source their materials. It might be the uh, way they uh, have their materials catalogued. It could be the um, types of vendors they buy for. And so if you think that's a centralized purchasing solution they put in place and if they're buying from all of the vendors outside the centralized system where there's better pricing there's contract agreements there's those sorts of things that's where the variances lie uh, in that particular process it was a supply chain and um and it was a centralized supply chain and uh, so they really didn't get centralization they just got everybody still doing everything their way interesting so a lot of companies in S4 HANA is probably a good example or a good uh, reference point for a type of ERP system that a lot of organizations typically implement because they want a certain amount of standardization and common business processes across the organization. So if I'm a CIO or a project team member involved in a transformation and I'm implementing any ERP system and I say, hey, I've got a single instance of the software. So I, it's not like I've got different variations of the software. It's one instance we're using across the globe and I didn't customize, I'm using commercial off-the-shelf functionality, I just did some light configuration. What you're saying is it's still possible that even in that environment, you could still have multiple variations of how you use the system. So it's, in other words, it's not gonna box in all the users into a certain process flow necessarily. That's that's right. And, and you uncovered probably the big problem when it comes to rolling out something like an S4 in the sense that it has the capability to do it. But many times people, the SI looks at it as being, a, um, what do you call it, a level three, level four process is what they start with. But they never get down to the detail of how people actually do that in the business. And so you might find there's people who are creating um, invoices or having invoices come in before they actually get a purchase order. Uh, mm -hmm. They might have um, go out and don't even get an invoice and just pay it on a credit card. Um, so there's all of those sorts of things that can happen that S4 in a rollout stage doesn't really look at because it doesn't get down to that level. And uh, whereas this allows you to be able to identify all right the way down. So are you using a credit card? Are you getting a purchase rec? Uh, have you had to change the price? And so that's where that consistency starts to drive back into the process and that's where you get performance out of your technology platform instead of just this assumed level three process that um, many organizations start with and uh, and they don't actually apply to the business context or to the operating model. And I hark back to the operating mm -hmm. model, but it's understanding how we operate as an organization and then what processes, how we conduct those processes. Interesting. Um, 
so it, I don't know why that question and answer triggered this thought, but it, if I'm a internal auditor and I'm concerned about controls and risk you know, or either just in general or because maybe we're, we need to be Sarbanes-Oxley compliant if we're a U.S.-based public company or we have other regulatory controls we need to have in place depending on where we're based in the world. Um, is this something that could help with that too? Maybe identify where there's control issues or uh, not necessarily inefficiency or process breakdown or variation, but more of a, a breakdown in the controls and security of the, of the system? Yeah, the early adoption of the tools like Salonis was, was for that, was actually to audit and trace to be able to get um, you know, reporting compliance and some auditors who were specialized auditors could identify where there wasn't controls within certain processes. So uh, it's evolved since then and um, process mining's only been around for probably five or six years. So it's not, a, not been around a long time, but it's really evolving very quickly. Okay, we're here playing a clip of Wayne Holtham and I talking about business process mining in process improvement and digital transformation. We've got a lot more to cover. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 120. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday. We're in the midst of a conversation here with Wayne Holtham talking about business process mining. So let's jump back into the clip. So the, the question that um, I wanted to get to uh, here, in addition to some funny comments here, um, what about, um, you, you sort of did this, this is similar to the question I asked you, but maybe you could, we could go into it a little deeper or maybe pick a different example. Uh, but the question here is from Rahendra on LinkedIn, and he says, could you share a process flow example and dashboard generated by the process mining tool? I, I suppose we probably can't show you a dashboard right now on the fly, but could you maybe walk through a, a process flow that you might, you know, that you might analyze and sort of where the process mining tool might collect different pieces along the way? Is that something that's, you could think of a good example we could verbally talk through? Um... Yeah, or procure to pay is probably a good one because most people understand it and most people buy things in their organization. Um, the, the process, uh, I suppose, that we look at is, is aligned to what our process is. So you might find there's certain steps or workflows that we actually have as an organization. When you do the evaluation, you start to see where those various points of the workflows touch. Um, and so you might say there's an approval uh, level where someone's got to approve expenditure. Um, and so you can see the time it takes for that, or you can see if there's processes where you need to change the price um, on what you're purchase ordering after you've already got quotes and you've been through that process. Um, and, or you might find that 
you get to the end where the material hasn't been supplied, um, yet you've received an invoice, or there's not a good receipt in place. Um, and so, so you can pick up all of those areas or those steps that might not follow this standard process. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that's that's super helpful. Um, let's see. Um, have you, this one's from uh, Liam on, on LinkedIn, and his question is, uh, if a user is manually converting a system created by... Uh, I'm sorry, if a user is manually converting system-created requisition to an order, could you see if they are doing any value add in that process? Would the process mining suggest to use an automated purchase order conversion function? Yeah, and that's that's one of the interesting things that are evolving out of this, is that many times, um, especially even in the goods receipt place, is that if you've got an invoice and it matches what your purchase order is, then you should be able to three-way match and automate that. And the same thing when it comes to uh, purchasing. If you've then got uh, vendor agreements where you've got set pricing schedules, if that pricing schedule comes in and it matches with what your purchase order is, you can automatically create that purchase order. So there's a lot of flexibility when it comes to getting consistency and automation as part of your process when you understand what what the inputs are to actually create that. Right. Now, what about if I were, um, if I'm an organization that is thinking about my digital strategy for the next three, five, 10 years or whatever, maybe I'm thinking about an ERP system or maybe I'm not sure and I just want to evaluate sort of what my current lay of the land is and what my future state might look like in terms of new technologies, processes, people changes, all that good stuff. How, how can a process mining tool and approach get us started on that journey or, or how could it provide input into that digital strategy and planning journey? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because your organization has processes anyway. It's the way it conducts its business. And so by improving and getting consistency in that space, you have the ability to look at any different technology platform that you might be able to implement because they follow a sort of standard linear process. We as organizations like to complicate that. And so we'll put um, you know, different workflows or different approval steps, but it allows us to have clarity of that. So when we actually go to the solution integrator to actually build our platform, we go maybe not from vanilla, but we put in those steps, but we're not really customizing. Uh, whereas the problem is if we don't do that, and we've got a lot of inconsistent processes, we find ourselves at the design stage trying to accommodate all of those inconsistencies, and that's where we get a lot of customization of process and hard to close design and all those sort of things. So it's a really good step to get us consistent in our process. And when you look at a lot of um, organizations that are disruptors, the one thing you can point on is that they've perfected their process to be consistent. So companies like Uber and those sort of companies where you know they're dealing with clients and they're processing um, orders and those sort of things, it's done consistently no matter where you are across the world. And they can monitor that. And so that's their power, that's their strength. Um, but how they, how they make a difference, yeah. Yeah, it seems like, you know, when you look at organizations, clients we work with, 
at third stage, a lot of them are struggling with how do we scale? You know, we've reached, we've grown to a certain point and now we're kind of hitting a ceiling where we can't scale to that next level. And a lot of times it's because of inconsistent or broken processes. And what you're saying, it, it sounds like that this approach or this tool set can help um, identify, you know, where are those scalability issues and where are those variations and the breakdowns that we need to kind of create a common operating model so that we can get to that next level. Is that? That's right. And it also allows uh, business units to actually work within an end-to-end process environment. Many times we have, mm. as a business unit, I do it this way. And then, you know, it's maybe accounts payable picks it up and they've got to then deal with whatever happened throughout that my way type thing. Whereas if you actually get it where they're all doing their piece in that puzzle, then you find that you know the value comes, that scalability happens, the automation opportunities come out of it. Mm. Right. And then back to the, you know, sort of that digital strategy question I had, or maybe a follow up there. It, it also sounds like if I'm not sure, you know, you talked about going to your system integrator and providing inputs that'll help with the the actual implementation. But even if we back up earlier than that, if I don't even know if I'm ready for an ERP system or CRM or HCM or any other technology, it seems like this would be an important diagnostic or an important input to help me understand, you know, where exactly are the opportunities for improvement? What are my priorities, you know, as far as what parts of my business are the most broken or ripe for opportunity? Is that true? Or could you see that being used? Or have we have we used that with clients on helping define a digital strategy and a path forward? Well, it's interesting, because some organizations are told by a vendor, you need to upgrade your technology. Whereas when you actually look at it from the process mining perspective, you actually go, well, if we get our processes right, I wouldn't need to change that. I can actually be very efficient in what I do and put off that decision to a time where I as an organization are ready, uh, or I find um, a, you know, a technology that really, really suits me ideally. Whereas um, instead of just going and saying, well, it's time to update, let's put something in. Um, this way you can actually really strategize about where your unique um, uniqueness in, in the way you do your business and then put a technology in that really aligns with that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. I think a lot of a lot of organizations feel like they have to do something now because their vendors are telling them, hey, we're, you know, we're going to sunset this product in 2025 or, you know, whatever the year is. And uh, this gives you sort of more. It, aren't, it equips you with information and knowledge that is really power in this whole decision-making process where you can make an educated, informed decision on what, what you do or don't do or where your priorities might be and where you, you really do need technology upgrades or improvements versus maybe not. Yeah, and it's inter- interesting. Over the years, you know, you go in and you do a major deployment, but you're taking out a technology that people say isn't very good, it doesn't work very well, we've got all these pain points, and then you look at what you roll out, you end up with the same pain points as you had before. If you'd fixed what you had before, far less cheaper, and you'd get the same benefit. But uh, no one could see what those pain points were. And I think now there's the opportunity to be able to see that. Yeah. And just going back to your example of the 17 ways of doing a, a process within S4 HANA, you know, if I'm, if I, if that were true before you implemented a new ERP system, you had 17 different ways of doing things um, and you didn't fix that, you're just going to put in new technology. And you're probably going to keep doing things 17 different ways, even with a, 
a more advanced system is just going to be more advanced way of doing 17 things. And that's, and that's what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And this allows you to be able to put in best of breed. So because you can go across module or cross platform or cross vendor solution, you can actually have a CRM from one company and you can have a ERP from another, and you can have a mobility device from another, and you can link those to whether, um, architecturally how they should actually go. Yeah. To, to work together. Mm. Right. Okay. We're here playing a clip of Wayne Holtham and I talking about business process mining in process improvement and digital transformation. We've got a lot more to cover. We'll be right back with more transformation ground control. Could you whisper in my ear? Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 120. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday. We're in the midst of a conversation here with Wayne Holtham talking about business process mining. So let's jump back into the clip. Yeah, super, super interesting. And then, of course, building your uh, your business case too. You know, if, if you're thinking about a digital transformation or you're trying to figure out is the ROI there, am I going to get a good cost benefit out of this investment or potential investment in technology? This gives you some really good quantitative real metrics. This isn't just... You know, like a lot of times software vendors will say, oh, you know, you can save 50% on your inventory and 25% of your GNA costs if you implement our technology. Well, that's, I mean, who knows if that's real or not. It's probably not real to, even if it's a real, a real average, it's probably not real to you as an organization. But this gives you actual real data you can use to build a business case too, I would think. That's exactly right. And, and that's the real benefit because you can say, well, if I'm spending X amount of millions of dollars to put in a platform, I can see that I'm going to get this improvement and I can bank that improvement because I can watch that improvement happen and I can measure that improvement. And so um, that's the powerful thing is that benefits realization in the past was very hard to measure. And uh, whereas today you can measure it right down to the last dollar. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, so another question here from uh, a couple more questions here on LinkedIn. Um, should we expect this is this one is from Rahendra as well. Thank you for all the great uh, questions, Rahendra. These are really good. Um, should we not expect modern ERPs have built-in process mining tools at least at some level? Have you have you seen that yet? Where ERP systems or any sort of enterprise technology has a process mining tool built in, or are these truly still standalone products for the time being? Well, I think the software vendors are starting to see the need. Hence the reason that Signavia was actually bought by SAP. Um, Originally, when Salonis started, SAP offered selling Salonis licenses um, for their clients to be able to use the system. So they see the value, but at this stage, it's probably one of those areas that they're not, they see there's a diversion for their um, mm. platform or, or solution, 
But I think in the future, there's going to be a lot more of uh, process mining, process evaluation that they will incorporate into their deployment of uh, new solutions. SAP is definitely going that way. And it's probably been their Achilles heel in this S4 world because um, that's the challenge. People are going, well, I need to actually get my processes right to get the benefits out of S4. And there hasn't really been a good mechanism to be able to do that. And that's the, um, the real problem with a lot of these deployments where they don't get the value in the long term. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I would think the software vendors are, have bigger fish to fry in the, in the next few years just trying to convert all their legacy customers over to cloud systems and trying to push as many of them as they can to convert to, to cloud. Um, but, you know, once we get past through this, uh, what I, what I, re, what I think of as sort of version two, 2.0 of Y2K, it's like Y2K yeah. all over again. Now everyone's sort of <laughs> rushing to get to the cloud. Now, once we get through that and the, you know, the IT software sales sort of plateau off as a result of that, um, I would imagine this might be an area that would be ripe for, uh, getting the holdouts to, you know, giving them a good data to help the holdouts convert to cloud or to sell them additional software. So I would think eventually ERP vendors might be well suited to, to have these tools built in. I, I think they will. And um, at the moment, like you say, the vendors are grappling with that change of code from, you know, the old way of on-premise to on-cloud. And many are still immature in that space. And so there's a lot of focus in their space to try and get the leverage of the new way that the platform should operate and depart away from the old on-premise view or code that they would have had in the past. Uh, still, there's a, a lot of immaturity in that space, even in the cloud area. And when we actually have SaaS solutions, the function that they have in there is quite limited. Um, and that's that's a big gap for um, the major players in the um, ERP space, at least. Right, right. Great. Um, oh, this is actually a really good question. This is from uh, from Liam on LinkedIn. Um, and actually, I, I'm glad he asked this because I was trying to think of something along these lines. I was thinking about data privacy, but he actually comes at it from a better angle, uh, which is, um, could you have a worker's revolt on your hands because they, they view process mining as surveillance software? So is this sort of a big brother uh, dystopian sort of uh, <laughs> situation that, that could have a negative ramification? Have you seen that at all? In well, it's it's interesting because when you're trying to sell the concept, if you aren't at the right level in the business, that is that's what happens. People go, well, you're going to see what we do, and we've been doing it this way for so long. We're very protective of that. So not necessarily the revolt, but resistance for sure. When you get in at the level where you know your executive level, and they start to see the value and how they can actually drive that value in their business and get consistency and really also asking their people to do is to do the process as it needs to be done, not workarounds and those sort of things, then you know it's not really Big Brother telling you what to do, it's just saying, well, here's the process we've defined. We just if you did it that way, it'd be great for us. Yeah. Right. Does does process mining get down to that level of uh, you know, for example, you know, the, the example you gave with the 17 different processes, if I'm, if I'm individually doing something one, in one of those 17 different variations, is it get down to that level of granularity to see that Eric Kimberling is the problem? He's, he's off doing his own thing over here, or he's taking too long to go through this process when we compare it to other people, or is it more yeah. of a collective uh, look? Down to the who processed it, 
um, when you processed it, maybe how long you took to process it, whether you didn't process um, process it. So it's um, yeah, it's got a lot of detail. Yeah, interesting. So to Liam's question or point, I mean, if if you're at that level down lower in the organizations and you are a decision maker or have any input into this tool, you might say, well, let's not do that. That's not not the kind of ability we necessarily want to need. But at the senior levels in the organization, you're probably going to want to see what, you know, what's happening in reality in those different parts of the. And it's a great tool because when you think you bring new people into organization, no one ever gets onboarded completely about how you should do a process. So they adopt maybe what they did the last organization. So this allows you to be able to look at it to that detail and then find training ways to be able to uh, upskill that person to get the consistency. So many see it as a benefit for onboarding and maintaining consistency across their organization. So there is a plot positive to it. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Have you seen it used to the point yet where I might use data from the process mining tool to evaluate you as a as an employee to to evaluate you individually and your productivity and to give you coaching and to, have you seen it at that level yet or is it more from the analysis of just trying to figure out how do we fix processes in general and have you have definitely you from the coaching level because um, especially when you roll out uh, a major deployment and you want to be able to see if people are actually adopting. Uh, the platform or the processes, it allows you to be able to go back to those people and say, well, you know, we're noticing that this isn't being done the way we envisaged. You're doing it this way. Let us train you or let us coach you the better way. The other thing that uh, really advanced processing, process mining allows you to do, it will flag up, here's what you should do. So you can have business rules built into the process. So it will alert the user to say that um, in this case, you should be maybe offering this or processing this or you know doing these sorts of things which allow the organization to get the maximum benefit. So it might be bonuses. You know, when you actually, if you pay early, you get a bonus. It alerts you or the user to actually go ahead and make those uh, payments so that the company can retrieve those bonuses. So that's a, you know, an example. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that that use case before, or or that intent, or that purpose of uh, for using the tool. Um, so just as a last question here, as we come up at the the top of the hour here, it, what what is the best place to start, or where how how does someone get started on a process mining initiative? I mean, what what do you what would you recommend to someone who's thinking about? Are intrigued by this whole concept of process mining? I think one of the ways that I got uh, involved in the early days when I was working in functional role was um, I saw on YouTube a clip and uh, I looked at what process mining was and uh, and then started to talk about, you know, to my leaders, um, this would be a good opportunity and, uh, and start from that basis. Uh, it was one of those things, knowledge is power. And, uh, and you shouldn't be frightened of process mining. There's a lot more benefits to it than there is being frightened of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's super cool. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a different, um, it's a different tool and, and it addresses a need that's been there for so long. I think back to one of the very first comments you made at the very beginning of this discussion was that, you know, instead of sitting in a conference room and talking about processes, you can now look at 
the data. You can still talk about the processes, but at least now you have data to support those discussions and to be able to guide and help you focus on maybe where you want to hone in and drill down and understand a little bit better. Um, and it's fascinating that in some ways it's fascinating that it's taken this long to have a tool like this uh, out there. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the growth of um, companies like Solonis has just been exponential growth. You know, they, they call them a unicorn. So there's very few companies that, that grow as fast as from nothing. So, you know, process mining was not anything before, whereas um, in a very short time, it's, it's now a really um, strong methodology uh, that people are seeing the benefits for. All right, good stuff. Thank you again, Wayne, for that recording a couple years ago. It's still as relevant today as it was back then, so we appreciate you being part of that conversation. Uh, we've got a few things to cover and debrief from that conversation, but first we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 120. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler. And Kyler, we just had uh, Wayne on the show talking about business process management. What were some of your findings and takeaways from that conversation? Yeah, well, the business process mining um, is something that if I were the leader of a transformation right now, I would run, not walk, to go invest in those services because of not only the technical aspect that they bring, but how they can really arm and shape the conversation. And as much as you want to say business process management is technical, it's also very emotional because you bring in all of the different departments into one room and you say, hey, you know, supply chain management, you're doing a really bad job and that's and we're going to change this entire process. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have people that are in really vulnerable conversations. But when you leverage business process mining, like you talked about, it's just data. All it is is data. It doesn't have any emotions behind it. It just showcases the opportunities and gives you a roadmap to be able to strategize around where your new technology is going to fill those gaps or where your new processes are going to fill those gaps. So I almost want um, Wayne or someone else on our team that's a specialist in business process mining to come back and kind of talk about the humanization and the organizational change asset that business process mining, a very technical scientific field can be to the overall project. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, it sort of, it fills that business architect, system architect role, or it helps enable that role. Mm -hmm. It helps really bring together, integrate technology, people, process, organization, strategy. It, it sort of, it ties everything together along with analytics and, and business intelligence and reporting as well. And so I'd love to hear from our audience um, 
we were looking uh, at putting together, we have a production list for all of our guides and resources and process mining was on there. So if you'd like to see process mining as one of our additional guides or reports, go ahead and, and put a thumbs up here in the comments. Um, if you have other ideas, we'd love to hear from you too, because we really want to make sure our approach here at Third Stage is making our content as valuable and actionable for you as an independent and technology resource um, as well. But thank you, Eric, and thank you, Wayne, for all that great conversations. There's so much more between Eric and Wayne on our YouTube channel, so you can go ahead and, and go over there. And actually, we have an APAC playlist that you can see all of their resources over there too, if you're interested in hearing more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks to Wayne and our other guests on the show, uh, Anthony, of course, uh, being on the show earlier, and of course to you, Kyler, for for being on the show, and to the audience for all the great uh, feedback and questions along the way. And again, you can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday. Be sure to subscribe on audio podcast platforms, and or you can uh, find us on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter as well. So be sure to check us out every week. There's 119 episodes before this one, so if you missed any of them, you can find them either on the audio podcast platforms. Or you can go back to uh, my YouTube channel, there's a playlist on there for uh, all the all the past episodes, going back to episode one. If you want to uh, see an episode that you can make fun of me for, uh, you can go back to episode one through five. I'd say I had no idea what I was doing, still don't at times, but uh, it was uh, it's entertaining. Good good guests though, I'll say the guests were good from the start. So, um, but you can go back as far as you want. Check out all these different topics we cover here every week. So, thanks for listening. Hope you all have a great week, and we'll see you next week on Transformation Ground Control. Are we recording? Let's do it. Let's go. Oh, I didn't yeah, record. <laughs> I was waiting for you to hit record. I didn't know we were already. I didn't know we were on a, a hot camera. I don't want to talk because sometimes I like, cut you off and you like, like mess up your flow. So I was just give you like this weird, awkward like nod. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Action. <laughs>